Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S. with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who was nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid-career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want and, in doing so, to elevate the D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I'm so pleased to introduce my guest for today's show, who is Ken Bacon. Ken is the co-founder and managing partner of Railfield Partners. Prior to forming Railfield, Ken spent 19 years at Fannie Mae, most recently as executive vice president and head of the multifamily business. During his tenure there, Ken oversaw a portfolio of $195 billion in assets, consisting of multifamily mortgages, conventional equity, low-income housing tax credits, and mezzanine debt. Prior to that, he was uh, head of the American Communities Fund at Fannie Mae. Before Fannie Mae, Ken was with the Resolution Trust Corporation back in the early 1990s, where the industry was reinventing itself after the mortgage crises of the early 1990s of the S&L business. Prior to that, he was in the investment banking 
uh, with both Morgan Stanley and Kidder Peabody primarily in the public finance areas of the business. Ken now is a board member of, of Well Tower, a publicly traded REIT. He's on the board of Comcast, Ally Financial, and Arbor Realty Trust as well. He serves on other nonprofit and trade boards. He's an alumnus of Stanford University and undergrad, and then on went on to the London School of Economics, got a master's in international relations, and then an MBA from Harvard Business School after that. So quite quite a, a background. Ken grew up in, in Houston, Texas, and he talks quite a bit about his background as a youth there and then moving up to Illinois with this different part of his family and got quite a shock there as well. So it's quite an upbringing and leading on to Stanford. He did obviously very well in school. Both his parents were very strong academically as well. So that helped him and they made school a very important part of his life. Here are five takeaways from the interview that I had from Ken. First, building relationships is, is key. Ken emphasizes the importance of building relationships in business as it can provide opportunities and support during tough times. Two, don't be afraid to take risks. Ken took risks throughout his career from attending Harvard Business School to starting his own company. He encourages young black executives to dream big and take risks. Three, diversity matters. Ken believes in the importance of diversity, not just in the boardrooms, but also in the media and society as a whole. He credits diversity for his success in business. Four, balancing mission and money. Ken emphasizes the importance of balancing mission and money, particularly in the affordable housing sector. He believes in making a positive impact while also being financially responsible. And five, Never stop learning. Ken's journey in business and life has been filled with ups and downs, but he never stopped learning. He encourages others to continue learning and growing throughout their careers and lives. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Ken Bacon. Welcome, Ken. I've, I've overviewed your background and in the introduction. Your life and career are very impressive. You founded Railfield, a multifamily investment firm, after a long career at Fannie Mae. Please, please describe your role and responsibilities at a high level today. At, at Railfield? Yes, at Railfield. You might say that I kind of function as the, the, I guess young people would say, the original gangster, the OG here. My partners really do most of the, the heavy lifting. Uh, John Siegel does the acquisitions. Todd um, Watkins oversees asset management and administration. My role is really one of opening doors because I've been in the industry so long, so it might be for funding. I found us deals at times. And our investment committee usually is me and John. You know, John does a deal. We sit up and talk about it. We go through the pros, the cons. Just two of you. Yeah, two of us. Okay. Because there's three partners. Todd will weigh in if there's going to be a huge asset management challenge. Mm -hmm. He'll weigh in, but most of the time, the front end, it's, it's me and John. Okay. Like I say, Todd will weigh in, for example, if it's a deal that's going to require like a lot of renovation or it's a tax credit deal where, you know, sure. management is going to be an issue. But when it, when it comes to going through the, the numbers and everything, mm -hmm. it's me and John. 
And it's not as much a formal process. It's kind of an iterative process where they start looking even before we get to the best and final. Sure. Hey, I'm looking. You know, we play. We don't go outside our market footprint. Seldom do we do that. So usually, you know, when he mentions a place, I know the market. So it's really about the specifics of the deal. And it's usually, because we were all lenders, we're very conservative. So I don't have to worry about anybody doing anything stupid. We walk in the door like, we're not going to lose money. We're kind of different from some real estate people. A lot of people go in, sure, how am I going to make money? First thing we do is like, we're not going to lose money. So it's really, John, really discussing what are the downsides of this deal. And again, we don't even have to go into a lot about the financing because... John's one of the best underwriters I've known. Great. So I know that part is not. Great. So it's really about the Well, I wanted to just get a high level now. I want to get into more details yeah. later on, on yeah. your company and really the rationale behind why yeah. you've been in lending so long. You're now in equities and buying. That's mm-hmm. that's another piece because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. a lot of people with your background wouldn't stay in lending, stay in their lane and not get into the equity yeah. side of the business. So that's what Sam Zale told me to do. Exactly. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> we'll get into that. So... Let's let's go back to your origin story, if yeah. we could. Mm-hmm. So tell us about your origins, your mm-hmm. youth, and parental influences. Mm-hmm. I understand you grew up in Houston, Texas. Yeah. Talk yeah. about that. I grew up in uh, Houston, Texas at a very interesting time. You know, I was born in 1954. So I grew up in a segregated society. And when I tell people that a lot of times, they almost ready to start giving me sympathy. But I had a wonderful childhood. I wouldn't trade it for anything. So what did your parents do? My father was a physician. My mother was a school teacher. Wow. They were both uh, in their families, you know, among the first to go to college. My father was an only child. And uh, How did he get that opportunity? Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, my father's story is, is fascinating. My father's parents were, my father was born on a plantation, a Taylor plantation, Panola County, Mississippi. Really? And his parents were part of the Great Migration North. From Mississippi. His parents and indeed uh, a lot of my grandfather's family left Mississippi. Some stopped in Memphis, some stopped in Gary, Indiana, Mm -hmm. but they were really scattered from Gary all the way up to to the North Shore, like Waukegan, Illinois. Sure. And my father's parents started out in Chicago, but they ended up in Lake Forest, Illinois, Yeah, where they were domestics. My grandmother was a cook, housekeeper for one rich family. My grandfather was like chauffeur, major domo for another family. And so my father grew up attending public schools in Lake Forest, Illinois. And that accounts for his, kind of for his accent. He had a very, my father sounded like Walter Cronkite. He had kind of <laughs> Western. And his education, he was, you know, he grew up among the richest people in the country. So my father was very well uh, acquainted with, I guess now people would call it the classical Western canon in terms of literature and music. Where did he go to college? Well, it's interesting. When he got ready to go to college, some things happened in high school, I think, that influenced him. When he was at Lake Forest High School, the smartest male student was my dad. Really? And the smartest female student was a Jewish woman, Ruth Cohen. And the American Legion would traditionally give awards to the best students and make a big deal, and they wanted to mail them their stuff because they were upset that it was a black girl and a, and, a, and, a, and a Jewish woman, a black guy and a Jewish woman. And the head of the school told the American Legion basically to shove it. If it in other words, if you don't treat them like you treat it to other people, we won't participate. 
I think that's one of the reasons my father ended up going to a historically black uh, college. He went to Fisk in Nashville. Really? Uh, and at that time, Fisk, along with Howard and Morehouse, were considered like the elite black right. schools. So he went to Fisk. Then he, this was in 1941, World War II broke out. So he went straight from college into medical school at Meharry, which is a black medical school in Nashville. Really? And, and ironically, that's where my brother ended up, despite the fact my brother went to Stanford, my brother ended up going to Meharry about 30 years later. So it was kind of a, kind of went full circle. So, you know, you had my dad, like, and... and Why Houston? Why did he go to Houston? Well, that, that brings in my mom. So my dad, like I say, his family, you know, his roots, the Chicago area, I think everybody thought he'd go back there. But he met my mother. My mother was visiting a friend. My mother's from Houston. And she and my dad met, and it was a whirlwind romance. And when they got married, he followed my mother back to Houston. And my mother's background trajectory was radically different from my dad's. Uh, my mother was from a, a Creole family. Her parents migrated to Houston from uh, Louisiana. And it's a pattern, again, same thing my wife's family I'll talk about later. And my mother's family and my wife's grandparents, there was a section of Houston they called Frenchtown, where the Creole families from Southwest Louisiana settled. Because of segregation, they ended up building their own Catholic church, our Mother Mercy. And up through the 60s, you could still go there in French. You know, you walk down the street, French was a language. So my grandmother, when I was growing up, my grandmother and her friends, when they were together, they were speaking French. So Cajun French. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. They, that, 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 was their, that, that was their language, even though they, they did not like to be called Cajun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, they, 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 they were Creole. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, and uh, what's the racial mix of that? Group? Well, that's the thing. They were very fair, for the most part, very fair skinned, like mulatto like in appearance. Right. And there were some who, frankly, you they'd have to tell you they're racist, to be honest with you. So, like my wife has, you know, cousins with blonde hair and green eyes. And, uh, you know, so my mother's family, they were like, you know, a lot of them were very fair skinned, very Catholic. Uh, my father was Baptist. So, uh, and, <laughs> and I'd say I, I like to stress this because people ask me later, why did I major in anthropology in college? And I said, growing up, when I would go to my grandmother's house, so, you know, you, know, you would hear them speaking in French. My grandmother lived on the borderline between a kind of a black neighborhood and a Mexican neighborhood, Denver Harbor. And so right across the street was a garage, Mr. Canales, where they were speaking Spanish. There was a grocery store next door owned by a Chinese family. They're speaking Chinese. You go to mass at Mother Mercy. In those days, the mass was in Latin. So I told people in a weekend, I'd hear five languages. Wow. I'd see all these different groups. And, you know, I would just sit around and listen. I was kind of famous for just hanging around people and listening. How many languages do you know? I know some French. I studied some in school, but I know, I still know a lot of the sayings in French. Sure. They, they were taught, they were kind of ashamed of it. My grandmother's English was horrible. Uh, my mother became an English teacher because of that. Really? Yeah, because, in fact, my mother and her sisters, all two of her sisters, three of them were teachers. One was a nurse. Her brother became a pharmacist. 
But and I'd say one thing that, that that's true in my dad's family, well, for my dad, that my mother's family and my wife's family was education, education, education. That that was that was just paramount. Because that was the only escape from from the poverty. Sure. And but like I say, it influenced me because even even when I wasn't at my grandmother's, just seeing the difference between the churches, you know. When I go to the, the mass, again, it was Latin. The altar boys were still dressed in white. And then I go to the Baptist church with my dad. So Completely just two different. very different styles. And people often ask me about race. I knew two white people before they ever go. The priest and a Jewish sales lady in the department store that we used to go to a lot. Those are the only whites I knew. And race, there was one good thing about growing up in that segregated neighborhood, and that was role models. My doctor, my school teachers, when I would go to a football game, the quarterbacks were black, the cheerleaders were black. So I grew up associating success, achievement with people who look like me. And I think that was a huge leg up. I didn't realize that till later. And even when I went to school, the teachers, you know, in those days, the best and brightest in the black community you became, they used to say teach, preach, or get in the street. So the people who went to college, you either became a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, a minister. Those are the only things. There was no business. You couldn't be in business. You, you know, shoeshine shop. To get a mortgage, you want to know how I got interested in housing. There were only like, there were like three ways you could get a mortgage in those days, but only two of them could scale. Sometimes with some there might be a credit union, but the real best ways to get a mortgage in those days, there was one savings loan, black-owned savings loan, standard savings loan owned by a gentleman named Matt Hanna. And then there was a uh, black guy, Judson Robinson, who had the FHA sheet. That's the only way you could get a mortgage. I mean, it was like magic to get a mortgage. And so, you know, there was a benefit. On the other hand, you know, the way as a young person, I would see race. One of my father's friends, a very successful surgeon, got beat up by the police because he sassed. He got stopped. He had a few drinks and the policeman called him the N-word. He told him to F off and they beat him. Another time. How old were you the first time you knew that you were a black man in America, per se? That, that feeling that many of your... I mean, I was aware of race. I can't from, from, you know, from the beginning, but the first time was probably like around six or seven you started realizing, like, here are the lines that, you know, were you could cross. And my dad was very active in civil rights locally. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, someone sent me a picture a couple of years ago when my dad and some other doctors, some black students were uh, protesting at the local, one of the local colleges. And my dad and some other people had to bail them out. Like I said, there were the beatings. I mean, even when, like, I remember one of the stuff about George Floyd. One of the ministers who spoke to George Floyd was my dad's minister uh, when they had the funeral service. George Floyd grew up as a crow flies, probably a mile and a half or two miles. Really? One thing about segregation, another thing about segregation, look, I had a middle-class upbringing, but I went to school with, you know, I mean, I I can tell you people I went to school with whose dads were preachers, doctors, lawyers. I also went to school with people who didn't have food. I grew up, the neighborhoods I lived in were 
kind of middle class, but you are never far away from poverty. You're never far away. One example I like to tell is that after, when I became an investment banker, back in the 1980s, uh, my boss and I were going to Houston looking at some bond deal. And I forgot why we went, went through kind of the edge of my old neighborhood. And we stopped to get gas. And a guy comes up and sees me, Kenny, how you doing, man? And, you know, we're speaking and kicking it. And when he walks away, the, my boss said, oh, Ken, who was it? I said, it was a guy I went to elementary school with. He said, oh, uh, he owns this gas station. I laughed. I said, no, man, he doesn't own it. He's just pumping gas. You know, so I went to school with, look, sure. one guy, there's some people I went to kindergarten with, one of whom went to Princeton, Columbia Law School, became a very famous news anchor in Houston. Another friend, Tony, who went to Harvard College. JD MBA at Harvard now lives in the richest neighborhood in Houston. Hosted Barack Obama when he was running, and he's on the boards of several companies. I mean, I, I could go on and on about successful ones, but I can also tell you uh, one of the funniest things that happened to Fannie Mae once is that not long after I joined Fannie Mae, I had a secretary who could uh, take dictation. So I called in one day. I said, I want to do this letter. I said, she said, certainly. So I said, it's letters to the Honorable Judge so-and-so, such-and-such district court, state of Texas. Say, dear judge, I'm writing you on behalf of John Doe. Known John for over 40 years. We went to nursery school together and blah, 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 blah. And I want to tell you that he's not a drug dealer per se. And my secretary looked up at me like, what the, you know, but it's a guy I grew up with who got busted for possession of cocaine. So, again, I've had friends in the boardroom. I've had friends in jail. In fact, one time I had to tell my wife, when I, again, when I was at Fannie Mae, I said, look, so-and-so is going to come in town. Are you comfortable with him staying here? She said, why? I said, well, you should know that he spent time in jail for manslaughter. And my wife looked at me. I said, I can explain. It was not like a random act. It was an argument that got out of hand, and he did his time. And my, after I explained, my wife said, okay. And I can't tell you how grateful he was, because he said, I really thought you would turn your back on me. I said, hey, I know your mama. I know your daddy. You know, we, we grew up together. I said, I know you're not. You, you got the bad situation. So I tell you that to say that when I say I had a great childhood, one of the things that made it great was, like I said, I knew the high, I knew the low. Fascinating. Give you, give you a long answer to this. Well, that's yeah. that's what I want to hear. I mean, this is great. So, what's, I mean, your parents, obviously, education was huge. Mm -hmm. So, that embedded in your soul, I mm -hmm. assume. So, yes. you obviously studied hard. You worked hard in school. Not, you know, it, it's funny. Not really. That was partly due to a couple of things. One, my brother was kind of legendary. My brother got skipped grades. He had your father's intelligence then. Yeah. And my brother, when he got was in high school, schools were still segregated. And my father, again, I told him he was active in civil rights. He did not want us to go to segregated schools ever. So my brother left Houston after the 10th grade, and he went to Lake Forest Academy. And he went to Lake Forest. Really? Yeah, there were people trying to get him to go to Exeter and over the Boarding schools are opening up, but because we had family 
And there were a few black families who had small businesses that my dad had gone to school with who lived in Lake Forest. So my brother went to Lake Forest Academy. He integrated Lake Forest. He was the first black student, the only black student. He graduated as valedictorian. Oh, my goodness. And he's the one who started the family thing about going to Stanford. I think it's partly as a reaction. I probably didn't apply myself as hard in school as my, my brother did. People compared me with him. So I was a good student. You know, I made A's, but I made a few B's. I wasn't straight A's. Um, but I was always very intellectual. I mean, I loved, I used to read National Geographic. I used to read American Heritage. I used to read all these magazines. And my dad would sit up and when my dad would come in, he was a physician and surgeon. A lot of times he would be in late, but a lot of times he would sit up. I can still see him sitting in the den, playing music. He was either drinking uh, bourbon and Coke or uh, Jack Daniels, you know, with water, smoking a cigarette, tie loose, and he would talk. It might be about a civil rights issue. It, I mean, I never took a black history course. I didn't have to. My dad would sit up and tell me he'd talk about everything from black kings in Africa to W.B. Du Bois. He would talk about, he would put on spirituals and tell me the history of that. Frederick Douglass. Yeah, I knew all that. Even when he would play jazz. I mean, and Count Basie, Duke Ellington. Well, it's funny you mentioned Count Basie. My dad knew a lot of musicians. Mm-hmm. And my mother was a great so I grew up, I mean, Count Basie, when he was in town, would come by our house. Really? Yeah, my mother's gumbo. Loved his music. <laughs> my mother's gumbo cooking thing was legendary. So Count Basie, Sam Cooke, oh. Bobby Blue Bland, wow. one governor, mayors, a lot of people came by our house to eat. And Dr. King? No, not Dr. King. I met Dr. King's daughter, but... Barbara Jordan, when she ran, my dad was her campaign manager when she ran for state representative in the first congressional election. In fact, funny story, I worked for Barbara Jordan after my freshman year in college. And the other day I was at the Cosmos Club for some function and a woman heard my name and came up to somebody at work at Barbara Jordan's office 50 years ago. Wow. In fact, she's invited me to speak to an affordable housing thing in Montgomery County in a few weeks. Isn't that something? So that's what I meant about when I grew up about the role models. I mean, if you go look at the history of integration in Texas, the first black graduates of the University of Texas Dental School, the University of Texas Law School, these people lived in my neighborhood. The actress, Felicia Rashad and Debbie Allen. Oh, sure. Yeah, they were, I, I, you know, they lived in my neighborhood. Their parents were friends with my parents. In fact, my brother just had a breakfast with Debbie Allen the other day. He was in L.A. Beyonce grew up on the street where my aunt lived. She went to school with my nieces. <laughs> so, but that was the nature of the community. You know, I'm not named I but it's just that like we, you knew everybody, you know, you knew everybody. That's great. So, so yeah, that's, that's so I, 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 what made me apply myself in school is when I got ready to go to high school, the schools in Houston were integrated. So I didn't think I'd have to leave, but my parents said, you know, if you go to the public high school, your education won't be as good as your brother's. So they wanted me to go to the Catholic, a Catholic boys school, straight Jesuit. Well, my brother was very Catholic. I was not. And I did not relish the idea of going to school with a bunch of priests. Not, not, not for any 
moral reason, but you know, I just I you just didn't want rulers on your hand when you're yeah, doing bad. I, I, just, I just didn't <laughs> want the, the, the Catholic because I, I got in trouble as a young kid. Yeah, when the priests would try to teach me stuff, I'd always counter with something I heard from my dad's minister. So my grandfather in Illinois died at that time. My grandmother was having a very hard time adjusting. So I volunteered. I said, you know, I'll go to Illinois. I'll go live with grandma. And at that time, uh, my grandmother lived in Evanston. And Evanston, Winnetka, those suburbs had the best public high schools in the country. So I went to Evanston Township High School. And that was probably the most, I'd say that was the real, the real racial the real racial awakening for me. Because in the South, if somebody didn't like you, you knew it very quickly. You know, if you weren't welcome, you knew it. And the worst incidents of racism I experienced were really in Illinois. Doesn't surprise me. I grew up in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. I lived I grew up in Gross Point, Michigan. Yeah. If you know the Detroit area. Yeah. yeah. There's a there's a road called Alter Road. You yeah. go across that road, yeah. it's literally black and white. Yeah. Literally. So so what happened when I got to Illinois, I got placed in honors class. Yeah. So the first rude awakening was that a lot of black students there were chilly towards me at first because and I didn't understand that. And what I discovered is that Evanston was the home of Northwestern University. Of course. So they were professors' kids, they had a heavy Jewish population, and a lot of the black kids starting elementary school could not compete with their white peers. Not due to the lack of native intelligence, but it was, you know, they weren't going to summer school, it was kind of a working class black community. Structural so, racism. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I'm taking these honors, they see me taking these honors classes mm-hmm. where I was often the only black student of one or yep. two or three, so they assume, oh, you know, you must not be with us. That was shock number one. Shock number two, I'm in these classes, I'm getting A's, and I used to hang out at the library. And again, like I said, I wasn't like, I wasn't a library to study, I just liked to read. So I started reading once about India, and I got into reading about Hinduism. And one of the teachers saw me one time getting this book, and he said, oh, what are you reading? I said, book on Hinduism. And we started talking. Well, this particular teacher was in charge of social studies. Mm-hmm. And he had studied India when he had, was a grad student at the University of Chicago. So I did independent study with him. And one day he said, you know, have you thought about taking one of the advanced placement courses? I said, no. So I applied to take European history, advanced mm-hmm. placement. And it created a furor at the school. Because some of the other teachers in social studies felt that he had lowered his standards to the end. And I had two, not one, but two teachers whose classes I had aced who told me, oh, they're just letting you in because you're black. You don't write well enough. And I'd say, well, I got an A in your class. How can you say it? I was devastated. I was devastated. My grandmother was ready to go down there and <laughs> whoop ass. <laughs> And I went to Mr. Sharp and I said, Mr. Sharp, uh, and I didn't even want to tell my parents in Houston what was going on. I was ashamed. I didn't know how to, I, I had never experienced anything like that. Because when, when they integrated schools in Texas, you know, like I said, you could tell when a teacher didn't like you, you could tell, right? And you could deal with it. 
So here I was, I was taking honors classes. Again, I, I, I had like a, you know, probably an A minus, B plus average. But to have teachers where I got an A in the class tell me that you're not good enough for this. And this man, Mr. Sharp, said, well, I think you're good enough. He says, your writing could improve, but I'm not worried about that. So yes, you should stay. And then the test scores came out. I, you know, we take the National Merit and everything. And I did extremely well. And the counselors and everybody, when I went to talk to them, they said, well, what would you, where do you want to go to school? I said, well, my brother's at Stanford. I want to go to Stanford or Northwestern. I want to be in, a, you know, look, you're 17. I said, I want to be in the, it's a Pac-8 thing. I want to be in the Pac-8 or the Big Ten. And they said, well, Ken, your test scores are certainly good enough for your grades. I said, what do you mean? Most people have an, uh, a perfect A or A plus. I said, so that's what I got to do? I said, okay. They said, well, Ken, you just can't. I said, watch me. Watch me. And so that's when I started applying myself fully for the first time. You were what, a junior at the time in high school? Yeah, junior. And because, uh, you know, I, got, I took AP yeah. history in my senior year. Yeah. In my junior year, I started, I turned on the Jets. Because I used to leave school, I'd play basketball after school, you know, just in the gym. I'd hang out, go home and listen to music. Did you play uh, any sports in high school? I wrestled. Really? Yeah, I wrestled. But then my knees got You're a tall guy for wrestling. But that's what happened. I just, my, I just had a growth spurt and my knees got bad, so I stopped. Yeah. People said about basketball, I said, you know, I played for a couple hours. Guys who were good would play, they go home. They go play at night. Oh, yeah. I wasn't that serious about it. And, but when my senior year, I would go study like you wouldn't believe. And not only was I studying, I was helping all my friends. I was helping them with their essays for college. I was helping them with their grades. Because when they called, they called in all the black guys at my high school who had done well on the National Merit Test. There were six or seven of us. One guy who ended up going to Cornell. I knew it was kind of a nerd, nerdy. Another guy was a football player who I later found out I didn't know it. His father competed against track against my dad in high school, but I didn't <laughs> know it at the time. But there, were another, there was one guy who was a borderline hoodlum, right? And I was stunned. I mean, I knew he was bright. I didn't know he was that good. And they had no idea about college. And, and that's what I mean about the, the, the class yeah. thing about the exposure. And so I get into this European history course, and you know these were—I mean, this was a school of about three or four thousand people all together, high school. So this was the best and brightest. And I got the second highest. There were two sections of European history, so altogether it probably taken forty people. I got the second highest score. I also took the AP test in English on a dare, and scored high on that. And I say that that's. I was, I was, when people told me I couldn't do something, I got pissed. You know, I, I went from sadness to anger, and I will never forget the teacher who, the teachers who backed me. And ironically, that same teacher got in trouble years later because there was a rebellion. Some black parents felt that there was too much resources going into the advanced placement courses, and he stayed up to defend it. And he was a very principled man. And it really hurt me. I found out later he got labeled as elitist. And he ended up quitting. Mm. And, but I used to, every time I'd go back to 
visit my grandmother. I used to go by and see him. But yeah, he was a leader. But you know, I always tell people that there's one of the things that happens in this country is that we associate elitism with class and with race too often, as opposed to merit. And he believed in me. And so when I got to Stanford, that's like I say, my attitude changed. So that's that that was the spark. So I'm one of those people, and I always tell people that I don't know if I would have been able to get to Stanford. Because now these kids, you know, people now, why are you doing with my kids? You know, people start, you got to start shining so early. I was a late bloomer. I was a very late bloomer. Well, you're also a black man. Mm-hmm. And at that time, and this is, you're about the same age as I am. So you graduated high school about 1972 or so. That's right. That's right. There's, you know, that era. I mean, if you were bright and black, you're going to get into college. And I mean, they were looking for that at that yeah. point because the civil yeah. rights laws yeah. and all the affirmative action and all those things going on at that mm-hmm. point. You were, you know, if you did really well, if you did better than, mm-hmm. let's say, 1400 in the SATs, you, yeah. you're going to yeah. get into a really yeah. good school. Mm-hmm. You could have gone to the Ivy League. You probably gone anywhere you wanted to, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But I wanted, like I say, I wanted to be Pac-8 or Big Ten. Right. And because I, I once went to a Northwestern Ohio State and I just loved it. And I went to a summer school program for my junior year at the University of Michigan. So I knew I was going to apply to That's Stanford. That's my alma mater. Oh, you went to Michigan? Yes, I did. Well, what happened, it was going to either be Michigan or Northwestern. Uh-huh. And I decided on Northwestern. But one of my brother-in-laws went to Michigan Law School. I have a niece at Michigan Law School now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that, 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 that turned out. So I still, jokingly say, I've still got ties to go blue. Yes. Uh, but no, that's 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 how it all came about. Yeah, and then why Stanford? And because your brother, I assume, was he there at the time when you went yeah. to school? Well, he, was he, there? he had actually left. He had, he graduated in seventy. But what happened when I was about fourteen? I went to visit my brother. Yeah, and I still remember I drove up Palm Drive going mm-hmm. to Stanford campus, and when I saw the church in the foothills. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It's incredible. And I fell in love with it then. And I I tell people that I still, it still takes my breath away today when I go visit. And so I just fell in love with the place. And the other thing that happened, my brother, I was, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to apply to Stanford. I don't know if I'm going to get it. I'm going to apply to Berkeley. I'm going to apply to UCLA. My brother would not let me apply to Berkeley. He said, you know, he said, oh, it's, it's, it's too crazy. You can't go there. And I can't remember how he talked me out of UCLA. But I discovered later the reason he didn't want me. If, if I had visited UCLA, again, you're 17 and you go look at the ladies, I think I would have gone to Westwood. I would have I been there. <laughs> so uh, my brother, again, was extremely confident. He said, you're going to get in, Sam. I said, I don't, you're going to get in. And, you know, I'd say a very important thing I'd say in anybody's life is you want people to push it, but you need people to have confidence. And if my father was the intellectual engine in my family, my mother was what I call the guts and toughness. And so growing up, my father would have been happy. You know, he used to talk about Howard and Morehouse. Of course. He was not enamored of necessarily the major white universities. He never, ever, ever pressed that on me or his grandchildren. He was kind of what I call a race man. And I think it was just the era he grew up in and what he experienced. So he believed in the black colleges. 
My mother, on the other hand, who had just gone to the local little black college there in Houston, I grew up, my mother talking about the Ivy Leagues and the University of Texas opened up. Mm-hmm. She made it very clear that my, my mother, when we did her funeral, we had a picture of her. We had one of her quotes where she said, I am the first lady. Now, the full quote was that people knew her. She used to say, I'm the first lady. And, and she laughed. She said, that other broad just happens to live in the White House. <laughs> and she laughed, right? But my, my mother always made it a point, like, even when she would cook, you know, she ate steaks, she says, you know what? The president steaks, your steaks as good as anything the president's. <laughs> you know, she, she made it a point to always push for the best. Mm-hmm. You're going to do the best. My dad had a different definition. So my mother... My mother's thing, even when my brother was like, went to Stanford, my mother really didn't know a lot about Stanford, but it was like, why didn't you go to Harvard, Columbia? My brother didn't want that. His school wanted him to. Like I say, he was a valedictorian. They wanted him to do that. But, and I still remember when we went to, my brother, again, another thing, my family is very low key. We didn't even know he was valedictorian until we walked in the graduation ceremony and opened up the program. And I remember that my, my grandfather, you know, again, he was a chauffeur. I thought he was gonna kill over with pride. And my mother, everybody was just blown away. And, you know, and so that's, my mother was like, why not the best? That, that's how my mother was. She's, that's great. She's a tough lady. That's tough great. Lady. So you obviously did well enough in Stanford mm-hmm. to get a Marshall Scholarship. Talk mm-hmm. about that process and what, what that is. Well, what happened? I got to Stanford. I got very involved in student politics. I took an anthropology course on cultures, race and culture in the West Indies. And most of the people in the class, there were a lot of West Indian grad students. And I got in that class. I loved it. I read everything. And I was the best student in the class. So the word got out among a lot of the grad students. And so, and I loved my subject area, anthropology. So I took all these courses on Africa, the West Indies. Did you ever meet Margaret Mead? No, no, I, I, I didn't go that direction. I was more like cultures. I was just, and again, I think it was a reflection of where I grew up. About, you know, I always believe that your race, your religion, your class, your geography, your language, all of these things shape your worldview. And so, you know, that's, that's what I did at Stanford. And, and I got involved in the student senate. I was protesting stuff. But again, I went through a thing. I was reasonably serious. But again, my junior year, I just got deep. I mean, I became a... Uh, in fact, I, I got so good that I remember I was even a teaching assistant as an undergrad for a mm-hmm. course in my senior year. I got a research grant to go to the West Indies after my junior year, so I went to uh, Trinidad and Guyana. Ooh. I stopped in Jamaica and Antigua, but I spent about a month in this country, Guyana, going through archives of, uh, from the 17 and 1800s, looking up stuff. So what happened when I came back from after my junior year, and I told one of my professors, I said, boy, I wish I could go overseas and study. And they said, what do you want to study? I said, well, you know, I'm really fascinated about how economic economic development and class and 
you know, I talked about the differences in slavery and what happened after slavery in the West Indies and the U.S. So someone suggested, well, why don't you apply for Rhodes and Marshall scholarships? And, and the process for both those scholarships is pretty, it's an arduous process because you have to get recommendations from a lot of professors. But because I had been so deep in my subject area, I had recommendations from professors in anthropology, sociology, psychology, literature. I got to know, in fact, one of the professors I, I knew well was got a little fame now was Kamala Harris's dad, Donald uh, Harris, who I didn't know until maybe a decade ago that there was about who his daughter was, I didn't know. But Donald was a professor of economics. And so that's what, you know, that's what got me interested. I wanted to go overseas and study. I wanted to study economics. And uh, Were you thinking academically to stay in the academic oh, yeah, environment yeah, no, at that point? You want to be a professor? I was kind of left-wing. I wanted to be in academia. I had been on the search committee for professors. I had been a teaching assistant. And by this time, another thing that had happened, my father had become a, a professor at Baylor Medical School. Ah, he should have. That's what. If it weren't for segregation, he should have done that at the beginning. Teaching. Yeah, he was like he ended up becoming a professor and associate dean at Baylor, and my mother was a school teacher at Oxford School mm-hmm. Teacher. So, you know, and my parents had friends who were professors. My brother's first wife got her PhD at Berkeley. Her aunt and uncle were professors, so I was around a lot of people in academia, and so. But what got me interested in business, ironically, was going to England. Wasn't anything in the U.S. because I did. I wasn't around a business person. No. So, what was your first reaction when you arrived in London, London School of Economics? What was well, that? my first reaction? Okay, I go to England in the seventies. This is when before Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is you become aware of in England the class disparities yeah. are stark. And, you know, it's one thing in the U.S. when you talk about uh, left wing, about more government involvement. And I got over there and like having to deal with the National Health Service. Mm-hmm. You no, know, you just didn't walk in the doctor's office. You had to wait. And uh, I saw the strikes going on. Yeah. But I'd say the two most significant things that got me interested in business is that I was in a dormitory where all the students were from former British colonies, Bahamas, Jamaica, India, Pakistan, South Africa, Canada, Australia. So I'm hanging around all these African and West Indian students, and they were all studying law. They were studying business. And I remember I once asked one of my Nigerian friends, I said, he was working for an accounting firm, I said, Oh, yeah, he was going to go work for Royal Dutch Shell. I says, but aren't these people exporting their company? He says, Ken, I'm working for the oil company. He says, he says, I want to run an oil company. And I told somebody, I said, you know, I heard all this stuff about revolution and Marxism. I said, I haven't met an African Marxist yet. <laughs> right? I said, and so what I realized, <laughs> and, and somebody who's a socialist will get mad, I said, you know, this is all a bunch of BS, right? And I even met somebody from China in one of my classes. This one, he was still wearing mild suits. And I remember asking this woman, <laughs> I, 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 I said, I walk, why are you here in London? In the School of Economics. And she said, Ken, internationally, we are all capitalists. 
So I got interested in business, and it so happened that one of the Marshall Scholars was the son of the head of a smaller oil company. So he had an apartment in Kensington. And he was southern, and one time after one party, we're drinking bourbon, smoking cigars. And I said, Charlie, man, how's it going? He said, what are you doing? He said, well, Ken, I got myself a part-time job at uh, Lehman Brothers. And I said, what's that? He said, it's an investment bank. I said, what's that? He said, it's like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. I said, who are they? So he started talking to me about that. And then another Marshall Scholar's dad worked for uh, a bank in Texas that had a London office where mm-hmm. I set up a checking account. Mm-hmm. And when I went there one time, we would get stipends. And it was in pounds. They said, well, sir, do you want this in pounds and dollars? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, the foreign exchange rate is very favorable right now if you want to convert to dollars. So I started, when I get money from home, I started paying attention to like the tra- foreign the trade exchange. rate. Yeah. So that's how I got interested in business. So I, I told someone, being in a country that still has socialist tendencies. Yeah. And I love London. Most of the Marshall Scholars were at Oxford or Cambridge. I was one of the few in London. I was doing economics. And the Marshall Scholarship is sponsored by the Foreign Office. So the Foreign Office would invite me to events. And one time I went to an event where I was the only student. And it was about recycling the oil dollars. This is 1976, 77. And there was people from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, J.P. Morgan. I mean, all these big people. Mm -hmm. And I met the treasurer of Royal Dutch Shell, who invited me to go to lunch with him. And so by my second year at the LSC, he once said, why don't you come talk to us if you'd like to get a job? And I was all set. I had a girlfriend in London. But what happened when I looked at what they would pay me and I looked at the taxes, I, I was horrified because I realized that I wouldn't be any better off than I was as a student after I'd have to pay rent. And I said, to hell with this. So I'm going back home. Mm-hmm. So that's what got me interested in business. And I still thought about academia, but I, I, I looked at business very differently because it got rid of my ignorance and hostility about business and uh, made me aware of the potential of business. Had you gone to Oxford or Cambridge, you'd probably be a PhD professor somewhere right now then, you think? Yeah, because I wouldn't have been as exposed. Like I said, in yeah. London, and you know, right now, if you, in the Bahamas, one of the people I know is the head of the Bahamian Supreme Court. Another Bahamian I know became like minister, you know, they became ministers in Jamaica, all over these, all these people did, became big lawyers, became ministers in government. Some of them made a heck of a lot of money. But I think one of the things about segregation, you associated business and a lot of wealth with race, right? Because there was nobody who looked like me who did that. All of a sudden, I see Africans, you know, Nigerians are all about the money, right? So all of a sudden, I saw in London people with extraordinary wealth. Again, culturally, they were different from me, yeah. but they looked like me. Yeah. In other words, race was not an issue in terms of their ambition, in terms of what they could do. And so that kind of stripped that away. Changed your whole orientation. Then. Yeah, yeah. And that was a real benefit of that. 
So then you came back and you went to Harvard Business School. So what, you know, obviously that stimulated that interest. Obviously. Yeah, well, what happened? I got back to Houston, uh, I shaved my beard off, cut my hair. I still remember my dad's minister, Reverend Lawson. I wanted to work. I applied for some banks. None of the banks would hire me in Houston at that time. There were still a lot of big independent banks. And Reverend Lawson's wife said, why don't you go to IBM? Some of our members were on IBM. I remember I went to IBM and the, the manager of the, of the office said, I, w- I walked in my coat and tie and he said, well, you know, we wear white shirts here. And when he said it, I went home and I jokingly told my mama, I said, well, I don't know whether he meant White shirts or white skin, but I could wear a white shirt. So I bought, I bought a bunch of white shirts. I went to IBM. I was a salesman. That was a hard job. Mainframe? This was a the small computers, what they called it then. They weren't PCs. Right. These were small Micro computers. Or Mac, what do they call them? Mini, mini computers? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in my territory, I had to go call on the most redneck people in the world. Because <laughs> my, my, my beat was selling the oil field supply company. Oh, yeah. So I go to these places, there'd be machinery and plants. And, you know, some of these guys, you know, they'd gone to Texas AM or maybe they hadn't gone to even college. And I had to deal with it. But I dealt with it. And it was great because I got exposed to business at a very basic level. And so the only question for me was was I going to do an MBA or JD MBA? And I had done enough of school. I didn't want to do the JDMBA. So I said, I'm going to go for MBA. It was between Stanford and Harvard. And I went to Harvard because I said, you know, I know the Midwest. I know Texas. I know California. I know London. I said, I've never spent time in New York or Boston. So as one of the guys at IBM said, yeah, Kenny, you need to go learn about them Yankees. So uh, (laughs) that's what I did. So I did. That's, that's how I ended up going there. How was your experience at Harvard Business School? It was, it was great in the relationships. I mean, in the time I went there, I mean, Jamie Diamond was in my class. Really? Yeah. Jeff Inbelt later went to, to General Energy. Electric. Yeah. yeah. So I formed some lifelong friendships there because of the way, you, you know, at Harvard, you sit your first year in a classroom and the professors come to you. So you sit in the same 60 or 70 people. And it was much more intense in those days than it was like with my daughter a few years ago. So that was good. I'd say the difference, though, was that unlike uh, Stanford or, or LSC, your relationships with your professors were very different. It was a more formal, more distant, more business-like relationship. So when I left, I still remember I took Michael Porter's course, the strategy guru. And I toured class at the best thing in the class, partly because I took a graduate economics course at Harvard. And so I figured out what he was doing in his class because mm-hmm. I took from one of his PhD advisors. So I knew what he was doing. So every time he presents something in class, I knew the economic theory. I knew the mm-hmm. study because I was still talking about going to academics. I thought about doing a PhD in business economics. And the only reason I didn't do it was when I took the graduate course in economics at Harvard. The students there discouraged me. They said, you want to do economics with MIT unless one of these professors adopts you. It can be a very lonely, it's not a good experience. Hmm. So that's, yeah, that was my experience in business school. It was the relationships with the people I formed that was most precious. So 
So finance, that intrigued you? You know, I really like strategy, but what happened, I worked at McKinsey one summer. I had a horrible experience. Why? It was the first time the Texas office of McKinsey had hired people. They just didn't know how to run an intern program. They didn't make me an offer. But the New York office found out how they ran the program and did make me an offer. And I just said, to hell with it. And that was kind of looking back, you know, wisdom is wasted on the old. Because two of my classmates said, hey, we heard you didn't have a good experience. Why don't you come work with us at Bain? Mm-hmm. And I said, man, I don't want to do that consulting. Well, those two guys went to Bain. They ended up working for Mitt Romney and started mm-hmm. Bain Capital. Yeah. Steve Paliuka and Bob White. So Steve Paliuka just stepped down as co-head of Bain Capital. Bob White stepped down a few years ago. And those guys, unfortunately, <laughs> always think like, oh, I can't believe you do that. But I got into finance, you know, I applied for a lot of jobs. I had offers from an oil company. I had offers from, I had offers from Procter & Gamble, Arco Oil, Time Warner. And I ended up in investment banking by accident. I went to a reception one day that Kidder Peabody was having in public finance. Yeah. And I met this guy and I, I did something. Oh, if I did it today, I'd be shocked. So I'm talking to this guy, because, and I went there, because you go to receptions, because they always had great food. That's of course. So I go there to get some shrimp and stuff, and I'm talking to this guy, and I said, well, man, you must not be working too hard. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you look like you got a nice tan, so you don't you look like you've been working to the midnight. Well, it turned out he was Cuban. Was Mike <laughs> so when I said that, when I asked, I just saw Mike. He said, well, I'm Mike Hernandez. I said, oh, shit. <laughs> and we both laughed. And I just really hit it off with him. So he got back and said, would you like to talk to us? And people said, public finance, why would you do it? But I never lost what I call the liberal, my my dad's do-good thing. So I joined Kidder Peabody in public finance. And I had a boss, Jerry Salito, who I'm still friends with today. And Jerry discovered I had a girlfriend in Texas. So that's my wife who I ended up marrying. And he said, you know, he had been in a long distance relationship. And he said, you know what? How are you going to see your girlfriend? I said, Man, that's going to be a problem. But, you know, I'll try to go down. He says, you know what? I'm going to see if I can get you on some accounts in Texas. And it was a little bit controversial because everybody wondered, like, can we send this black guy down to deal with these people in Texas? And because of my experience at IBM, I, I told him, I said, you know what? I'm going to do better than you. He said, what do you mean? Because I said, I know how to talk to these people. Y'all don't. And that's exactly what happened. One lady who was kind of, you know, very, you know, back bay Boston. We had a dinner for a county judge and some people from a bond authority in Texas at the old Four Seasons restaurant in New York. And she ordered a rack of lamb. So when they served the judge, he said, ma'am, this is lamb. She says, yes, they're famous for their rack of lamb. He said, I'm a cattleman. And she thought he was kidding. And I said, Judge, no problem. I said, waiter. <laughs> and I stepped in and she her mouth was open. She couldn't believe it. She said, I thought that was only in Westerns. And I said, no, that's I said, that's real world. And so after that, she said, Well, you go deal with these people. <laughs> uh, and so I used to go to Texas about every week. I'd see my wife, and, you know, my girlfriend. I'd, I'd fly to Houston and and so that's what kept our relationship going. That's great. That's great. So you uh, joined Kidder Buddy. Yeah. Joined, at that point. Doing taxes and housing. 
There you go. So where'd the real estate bug hit you? Okay, I'm doing taxes and housing bonds, both for first-time home buyers, single family, and multifamily. Okay. And did, you know, got to know a lot of developers. When securitization started, Kidder had some great traders, mortgage bank traders, Steve Baum, Tommy Kendall, Mike Vranos. Mike Vranos later started a hedge fund. Steve Baum and Tommy Kendall started a fund. But they, they didn't have a banker. You know, this was all new. So my the head of public finance volunteered me to be the banker, right? I didn't know anything about the SEC, but I knew about cash flows because we had to do structure credits in public finance. Mm-hmm. So I was the guy who would go up to the trading floor. I do the SEC filings. Mm-hmm. I did the capital commitment memo for the firm. Mm-hmm. I oversaw the cash flow analysis. So I learned, in other words, I was operations administration for Kidder securitization efforts. And it was a hard job because the traders, I learned all the games the traders were played. Did you have the GSC exposure at that point? Not really. I mean, well, the exposure I had was dealing with, we started off doing Jenny Mays then, right. Fannie and Freddie. So right. Hush. Yeah. But, but then I dealt with Fannie and Freddie securities, but I never dealt with Fannie and Freddie. And I left when GE took over, the culture changed. I should have stayed from an economic perspective, but the culture changed. I just didn't like it. A lot of rivalries, it became very political. So I went to Morgan Stanley. And at Morgan Stanley, they did securitization different. I was an investment banker that covered savings and loans. Mm-hmm. And that's how we would bring in product. But I still sat on the trading floor. So this is late 80s? Yeah, late 80s, 1987. I was Got at it. Morgan Stanley when the market and I covered these savings and loans. It was great. But then in 89, I hadn't been there long. Savings and loans started going under. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, the good thing is I got to do a euro dollar deal. I got to do different structures. But savings and loans started going under. A lawyer I knew in Texas went to work for the Resolution Trust Corporation board. The board. And he used to call me to get market advice. My business was disappearing at Morgan Stanley. I was going to have to make a move. And it so happened that the one professor at Harvard that I was close to happened to come to town. And he asked me, we went to lunch, he asked me how much money I was making. I told him. He said, well, you know, Bill Lewis, who was a close friend of mine, the first black MD at Morgan Stanley, m he said, well, you know, you know what Bill's making? He mentioned Ray McGuire. He mentioned Zoe Cruz. He mentioned Gordy Rich. I mean, he started mentioning all these people, Jamie. And I said, well, they're doing it. Hey, they're doing this. He said, you took classes with them, and you did as well or better than them. Because I did finish. <laughs> I got second year honors at Harvard. And I said, what's your point? He says, Ken, is your heart really in investment banking? The people who do well in investment banking love money. Yeah. And they come in every day ready to do that. Is that really you? And that started soul searching. And it really wasn't me. And so I started looking for something outside of banking. And one of the senior people at Morgan Stanley who liked me could not believe that I was contemplating me. Because, you know, at that time, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Right. right. But this guy I knew working at RTC, one day, and he, he wasn't trying to recruit me. He said, man, we could use somebody like you down here. I said, well, why don't you? Made me an offer for a job. He says, you leave Morgan Stanley? I said, you left Vincent and Elkins. You left your law firm. Mm-hmm. 
So I went down to Washington. I took a job as director of policy for the, for the oversight board. And the board at that time was Alan Greenspan, Nick Brady, secretary of the treasury, Jack Kemp from uh, HUD, uh, Bob Larson was the head of the Taubman Company. Oh, yeah. And another guy was a retired federal reserve governor. And my wife, everybody, they, people, they couldn't believe that I left Morgan Stanley. I took pay, to say I took a pay cut would be an understatement. And I went down to Washington. And yeah, every week I would go over to Treasury to brief people. Deputy Secretary, Bob Glauber, John Robson. And one time when we realized that, that the pace of sales was too slow, that, the, you know, most of the RTC staff was from the FDIC, and they knew one way to do things. So me and this lawyer said, we need to bundle these things and sell groups. It was a huge, huge fight. The FDIC didn't want to do that. There were people in Congress who didn't want to do that. And You understood securitization. Yeah. But no one had even securitized commercial mortgages and non-performing stuff. But we felt, me and this guy, Michael Youngman, felt that you could do this. And I remember one time I got into a slight disagreement with Chairman Greenspan. I will forget that. And I was arguing and I said, you know, I don't think I'm going to win this. Because <laughs> Greenspan, you know, he mumbled in public, but he was not like that in private. But but he is he and Secretary Brady were the unsung heroes because the bureaucracies were fighting. And I still remember when there was a meeting when someone from the FDIC and someone from the Senate Banking Committee said, we had put up a proposal to securitize all these mortgages. And they said, and then we said everything non-performing to do bulk sales. We came up with all these structures. And they said, you can't do this. Wall Street will make a lot of money. And I remember Greenspan said, he says, yes, they'll make a lot of money. And he says, at first, they'll probably make above market returns. But over time, the markets will become efficient. And they said, but they'll make money. And Greenspan said, this is America. There's nothing wrong with people making money. They make their money. They pay their taxes. You know, government is not in the business of making money. Government is not in the business of owning assets. Government shouldn't do it. So did you ever meet Joe Robert, J.E. Robert? Company? Yes, I did. I met, in fact, if I told you everybody, I met Ace Greenberg. I met Dick Foles, Michael Montero, Louis Ranieri. I met every big mortgage trader. Give, give some perspective on who these gentlemen were to the listeners Well, here. you know, I controlled a lot of business. I was the biggest game in town in mortgages and, and uh, real estate. So everybody wanted to kiss my behind. <laughs> right, and well, Dick, and, Dick Fold, t- 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 yeah. explain who he, he was. He was President Lehman Brothers. Right. Even though I will tell you, the most impressive person I met was Ace Greenberg, the head of Bear Stearns. Right. He was the most impressive because he was the most honest. He had a charisma that was undeniable, and Bear Stearns were probably the best at, under him. They were the, the bond. They were the bond kids, and they were the best risk managers because. Uh, Goldman was good, but I, I, sometimes I didn't fully trust Goldman because there were a couple of times I found Goldman was not as transparent. <laughs> what about Solomon Brothers? Solly, yeah. Solly had the, had great traders. Goldman had a guy, Michael Montara, who I respected. 
First of all, all the people came from, had, had done time under Lou Ranieri. I mean, Lou Ranieri was the kingpin, wasn't That's he? right. And all these guys. But there were people like Wes Eaton's who started Fortress. Fortress, right. Wes sure. Eaton's. Yeah. And there were traders, people that started Solid, like a guy, Jeff Cronthal, who was at Merrill, who I had a lot of respect for. So I met all these people. John Goodfriend? I mean, John Goodfriend? I never met John Goodfriend. I can't remember. I, oh, I'll tell you what happened with Solid, because Solid got in trouble while I was there, and that's when Warren Buffett came in and put mm-hmm. in Bob. He put in this guy, a lawyer. And it, ironically, he put in a guy who, uh, a British guy, uh, I forgot his name, who I later met when I became a banker because he, a lot of guys I went to LSE with, British guys, ended up becoming investment bankers. Mm-hmm. So I met all these people. Um, Michael and, Lewis, of uh, course, wrote about all this. Yeah. In and Larry's I was, poker. it was the best job I ever had. I managed people, it was fun. I was a big shot, but I knew I was only a big shot. It wasn't me. It was the position I held. And when I got through, I was ready to go back to Wall Street. I didn't get the offers that I wanted to, what I thought I should have. They were commensurate with what I had done. So RTC basically, you know, collapsed pretty much, right? Well, I left before it did. I, I, I knew enough. You know, one advantage sometimes of, I'd say, of race, being a black man that came up when I did is and something my mother used to always reinforce. Because I remember once when I was at Fannie Mae, my mother came up to see me. She said, Ken boy, you done good. She says, but don't you ever believe that all these people around here kissing your ass? That if you fell on the sidewalk, a lot of these people would walk right by you and spit on you. Don't you ever forget that. She said, the world ain't changed that much that fast. And I was aware of that. In other words, I knew that, like, look, all these people are coming up to see me kiss my behind. The minute I leave this, they're going to be gone. And that's what happened. Not everybody. There were some people who continued to be, you know, friends and cordial after I left. Mm-hmm. But I went to Fannie Mae because Fannie Mae offered I could make money, but I could do good. I could put people in the house. And so Fannie Mae offered the best combination, and I could manage. And that's what drove me to Fannie Mae. So it was mission and money. And, you know. It sounded like mission meant more to you than money. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I never aspired to great wealth. You know, I wanted to live an upper middle class lifestyle. That, that's what I want. You know, I wanted to be able to send my kids to school. But, yeah, you know, I, I didn't. I didn't dream about yachts and private jets and all that type of thing. You know, that's, that wasn't me. So what was your mission at Fannie? What did you try to accomplish? There were several things. One, I truly believed because of what I saw growing up. And Jim Johnson, God bless him, it was sincere that this thing about the, the wealth gap and home ownership between black and white which led to disparities in wealth creation, which led to disparities in education. I wanted to do my part to correct that. But the other thing that was important to me when I went to Fannie Mae was that Frank Rains was there. They brought on Lou Hoyes to run multifamily. Mm-hmm. And so I also wanted to be at a place, you know, Morgan Stanley did a lot for diversity. I don't think they got enough credit. But I wanted to be a place where I didn't feel I had to fight every day 
for that. I wanted to be a place where I felt valued. And I wanted to give back in that sense. So, you know, all my mentors on Wall Street, a lot of them have been women. And that was another thing I liked about Fannie Mae was that I saw women in position. Ann Logan, who would run my region. I ran the Philadelphia region for six years. Ann became chief credit officer. So the values of the company were important because that's what I wanted to do. And I'm very proud of the fact that when I left Philadelphia, that Zach Oppenheimer took over, a guy who had worked for me. When I left multifamily, it was Jeff Hayward, who was a black man who had worked for me. And when Jeff left, it was Michelle Evans, who runs it today, who had also worked for me, a woman. I'm very proud that when I left places, that I left them better, but I let I trained people who went after me. And I'm very proud of that. And so at Fannie, I got to help some women. I got to help some black. I got to help some white. I got to help people who later, I mean, now the, the head of agency lending at J.P. Morgan, Vince Toy, worked for me. Hillary Province, who oversees all the multifamily. Hillary worked for me. I mean, every dust lender, there's somebody who worked for me. Now, some of them might say Ken didn't have a damn thing to do with my career, but I'm just proud of them that I touched them. So you went, you started in, in single family, right? Yeah. And yeah. then evolved to multifamily. Did, yeah. did, were you in the origins of the multi of the dust program or no? Uh-uh. That was Larry Dale. Okay. Who was uh who, who was a is a great man, deserves a lot of credit what he did. Larry started it. Larry had a deep, deep, deep sense of mission because he had been at HUD. Uh, uh, you know, he started the DUST program. It was interesting. Both Fannie and Freddie's multifamily programs had people who had learned from failure. Larry saw what happened with HUD, the DRG fiasco, uh, uh, Adrian Corbert, came out of a life company at Freddie. And the reason that the Fannie and Freddie multifamily programs did not go down the tubes in 2008 was that they were started and run by people who knew that things could go bad. Single family at the GSEs went bad. You know, one of the things I always say about risk management, the most important thing in risk management is imagination. You know, you can't prepare for a scenario that you don't imagine. And Larry, Adrian, those people who started those programs, they went through the 80s. They saw that a property could go from a value of X to 30% of X, that it could happen. And they created programs, different approaches, but all with the same objective in mind. I'm going to argue with you with one point yeah. with that point. Yeah. You mentioned Ace Greenberg mm-hmm. and Dick Fold. Mm-hmm. Did they anticipate what was going to happen in 2008? Dick Fold didn't. If Ace Greenberg had been around, Bear Stearns would not have gone down. Well, that's interesting. Ace, and the reason why, Ace knew at the end of every day his mark-to-market. He had spies on the trading floor. He had people reported directly to him, not the traders. And he knew it. Fold, I don't think. I mean, Greenberg knew trading. He knew the risk. He knew how to manage them. He knew how to watch. Fold, I'm not saying he was a bad guy. I just don't think that the instincts were there in the systems. When Ace left, when Jimmy King got there, you know, when you read about it, Bridge, he didn't focus on the business like Ace Greenberg did. Ace was like, 
there wasn't there weren't gonna be any losses because the minute he saw a loss, it was like, what are you doing to liquidate it? What are you doing to manage it? He was on top of it. But the, they just got ahead of themselves with this whole structuring piece, and I'd be interested in your perspective on how that all happened because you you were inside all that. You know, mortgages. I tell people. I once had a conversation with Larry Fink when he was still at uh, Credit Suisse First Boston, this before BlackRock. And I talked to him and I asked him how he got the mortgages. And basically, he, he said, mortgages is where they sent the people that didn't feel fit in the corporate finance. The mortgage area was, you think about Luminary, it was not an Ivy League guy. No. It was, it was Italians, it was Jews. Few black guys. It, it, we were the people that didn't fit. Liars the poker. Yeah, and <laughs> but it was a very quantitative field, and very few people who ran investment banks understood it, and even a lot of the traders didn't understand it. It was it, it, it was you know trying to predict those cash flows, and if you look, no business has done more to sink reputations in banks than mortgages and real estate. Nothing, not junk bonds, not M&A, not tech, real estate, commercial, and mortgage-backed securities have done a lot. And I knew that. You know, I knew that. I understood the cycles. And my predecessors, Larry Dale, Lou Hoyes, the people who came after me, Adrian, Mike, Mike May. David Brickman, you never saw anybody at the GSEs on the multifamily side loosen the credit brands. So when 2008 came, they didn't lose money. And the firms that lost money usually lost it because they didn't watch their traders. They didn't watch the traders or they ignored the advice. So there were people who got ignored. I know that. I, you know, I, I won't mention names. In fact, Freddie, I won't mention names of some of these Wall Street firms. But there were situations where people tried to tell their CEOs, you shouldn't do this. And people didn't always listen or didn't understand what they were told. Yeah. Well, the story about Lehman Brothers is classic yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Bear, yeah. Lehman, Merrill. Yeah. Yeah. People got in situations they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't listen to the risk people. That's right. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, your multifamily division experience. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk about some of your initiatives and experiences there. When Freddie Mac emerged as a major competitor, did that help your business? Discuss, discuss some of the differences and similarities between the programs. Uh, just as a side, I was employed by Leg Mason mm -hmm. at one point. We were a seller servicer to Freddie. Mm -hmm. But we decided as a company at the time not to do the Fannie Mae Dust program because of the because of the co-insurance risk. Yeah. Maybe talk about that okay. distinction between the Fannie okay. and Freddie program and okay. why you decided to do that. Okay, well, each program reflects the historical roots and experience. Larry Dales, the Dust, who started Dust, learned from the experiences of HUD insurance programs. And basically, a lot of people like did bad underwriting, did bad deals, and stuck HUD with it. So Larry started from the standpoint like, you know what? I've got to have a program where people have skin in the game. Mm -hmm. It has to be a form of co-insurance. Mm -hmm. Freddie was more like a life company. Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, 
you can originate, but we're going to do the underwriting. So both were like, in other words, one person said, I want to make sure the underwriting is right because you're going to have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. The other one said, I want to make sure it's right because I'm going to do it. So, and, and it's interesting. also I'd say Fannie probably had more of a mission focus on affordable than Freddie did. Freddie, again, like a life company, they were not only underwriting the, the real estate, they were also underwriting the borrower. That's right. Where Fannie was less concerned about the borrower, more concerned about cash flow. Fannie was more likely to do a small loan. It's interesting. But, you know, I had all the respect in the world for Freddie. Uh, I liked Adrian. I liked Mike May. I liked David Brickman. Mm-hmm. So I was never going to say anything bad about them because I liked them. I respected them. They were good people. They knew what they were doing. I wanted to beat them. It's and, good that they were there, so you had the competition and stuff. Oh, yeah. I, I think it was good because, A, it was additional liquidity in the market. Right. And it was also good because I think you know the key to life is always having choices. That's right. And so, you know, it's best when you're the only game in town. I used to even tell some borrowers, I'd say, you know, you ought to have a relationship with Freddie. They said, why? Because I said, I want you to do business with me because you think I got the best deal, because you want to, not because you have to. Right? Talk about the distinction between Freddie and Fannie and HUD mm-hmm. and their lending process, mm-hmm. which in my experience as a mortgage banker, mm-hmm. Was a disaster. <laughs> okay, here, I'll be. I'll try to be a little bit politically astute. Here. <laughs> I think the problem with HUD is that HUD never got the appropriate resources and systems, but also they were like held captive to their industry. There have been disasters and blowups. Things have done at HUD that lenders have done. That if that had been Fannie and Freddie, they would have put those lenders out of business. We wouldn't let them do it. So, but HUD, the danger to me of any bureaucracy, and I told you about my experience in, in the UK. So, you know, look, I grew up in kind of a democratic family, and I, I'd say, I tell people I'm a man without a party today because I'm either conservative, Democrat, moderate, Republican. It is hard for government to do lending. Because at the end of the day, someone's got to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. And the problem with uh, a government bureaucracy, there's no upside in saying saying yes. There's no upside in jumping on a problem. So you kick the can down the road. And so that's why there's been so many blowups with FHA. And, you know, because as government, you can't tell someone you're not good enough to be a lender. Well, you know, you know yourself that Freddie, even though you didn't have to put up capital, Freddie was like, I'm not just going to let everybody be my seller servicer. And in Fannie, I purposely kept the number of dust lenders small. Mm-hmm. I said, look, I want everybody to make, I want all the dust lenders to make a lot of money because they're my capital partners. I wanted them to make money. But I also wanted them to make money because that gave me control. Because basically, like, if you get out of line, I'll take it away. Right? You've got a good thing going, but you've got to act right. And, you know, I, there were some uncomfortable conversations, but I never had a case of fraud with the dust lender. I never had to just, you know, snatch it away, take it away from them. If you, if you think about it, if you look at the Fannie and Freddie multifamily programs, they have been remarkably, given the volume that they've done, scandal-free. Mm-hmm. Remarkably. 
not only in terms of the lenders, but even the loans. Does that mean we haven't had loans go bad? But I'm just saying, if you go look at the credit performance and look at the risk that they've taken, they've done an extraordinary job. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary job. And, and I think that's the advantage. Like, we limited both agencies, limited who they do business with. And one of the things, in fact, I just did this, I was at a conference with Artemis the other day, and I told them something that my mother told me when I was getting married that I applied to business. When I told my mother that, you know, I was engaged and we sat down and talked, and she, my mother didn't use French that much, but this is one time she did. And there was a saying they had Southwest Louisiana, Prom Marie, Prom Pays, that when you take a wife or take a husband, you take the country. Marie, husband and wife, pay the country. What that meant is when you married somebody, you took everything with them. Mm-hmm. And, my, and some people said that's for better or worse. But from my mother's perspective, what she was saying is, okay, do you know Judy's family? Do you know her friends? Do y'all share the same values, right? Are you going to embrace the same things? But she said, when you get married, when that priest says I do, you know, that was a very serious commitment to her. But she was also saying not only do you need to know all these relationships, can you embrace them? Can you make them part of yours? And can she say the same thing about you, right? And I've applied that. That's was my feeling of business. You know, you can have either do business with people where it's a transaction or it's a relationship. Now, you know, there were some cases we did deals of relationships, but all my lenders, you know, I spent, I mean, I knew the head of each one of my lenders. When I said I knew them, it wasn't just a cap, I knew them. I spent time with them. And my big borrowers, I mentioned Sam Zell to you. I, I spent time with Sam Zell, Steve Ross, the Brodskys in New York, the Sobratos in California, Rick Campbell in Campbell. I met, if somebody had more than several hundred million dollars of exposure to them, I said, I want to meet them. Because there's a contract, but a relationship goes beyond the contract. Of course. And if I didn't feel comfortable with somebody, and I won't, well, well, I'll give you an example. I can mention one, Donald Sterling, one of the Clippers. And I discovered that, you know, about his attitude, this is before stuff came out of the Clippers, but his record on Fair House was not good. And I read some of the things, and I said, I don't want to do business with this guy. Right? I said, I don't want to do business with him. Uh, I'm not saying all these people had to be angels, but I didn't want to feel I was going to do business with anybody who didn't reflect the values of Fannie Mae. And I don't want to do business with somebody where, like, I was going to have to lawyer up if something went wrong. Well, it's interesting. What you just explained is what I learned when I was a mortgage banker. Yeah. That relationships were more important. The lender needed to know. That's right. The borrower. Yep. So, and that was part of my job was Mm -hmm. to make sure that you know, with especially with large relationships, mm-hmm. we would go. I mean, I represented Aetna, so mm-hmm. we'd go to Hartford, take them there, take the borrower there, meet the meet the lender, mm-hmm. and have the interface so they knew who they were dealing with. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just it was a mentality like that. And that was a mentality. You know, like I said, that was Freddie and Fanny because the lenders did it. But even then, like I said, my lenders knew their customers. Of course. And, you know, I, I had relationships. I remember after 9-11, we had done a loan with Arcs, Howard Levine. And Howard wanted to take full risk sharing on it. I 
remember I said, Howard, I don't know if you should do that. This is before 9-11. It was just the size alone. I said, if something happens, he said, Ken, it's good for it. I'm doing this with this guy, Dean Adler. Look at that. Dean Adler. Yes. So 9-11 happens. Yeah. And of course, they can't pay. And the question is, does the lender eat this, which would have put the lender under? It was an act of God. So the lawyers are going through everything. I had a relationship with Howard. I didn't know Dean Adler. And the lawyers were talking. You know, they're saying it's like, God, people say, no, we need to take this property and everything. And I finally said, you know, let, let me meet this guy. And we met. And the reason I tell you that, we have a relationship to this day. Because I, I went to New York to visit that building. And I'll never forget that. I remember going to that building and they were still yellow tape. I had to get permission from the police to go. Me and one of my vice presidents went, and I remember I got to the top of that building, and there were seats from the airline on top of the building. Wow. I remember like, and I said, oh my God. Wow. And we worked it out, but it was a relationship. I, I basically told the lawyer, sit down. You didn't tell your lawyer, sit down. Let's meet you. And I could see he was an honorable guy, right? And he was going to do the right thing with this building. So I went back and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, there was another bar, I won't mention the name, who my people didn't want to do business with because they had been, I think he had once threatened to declare bankruptcy years ago. And I met with him, a guy from Texas, and I discovered he liked cutting horses. And I used to ride horses. So I had, we started talking about his studs and his horses. And I could see, in the one way I tell people, we can do this too. And, you know, I like I said, I met. I met Sam Zell. Now, David Nethercut, Mark Perel, I thought, well, I still think of great people. Would they beat me up? Oh, hell yeah. But I used to even contrast EQR with Arkstone. The difference was, was that EQR would say, Ken, here's the, here's the boat. Here's what the proceeds, here's, here's what the coupon was. And I knew that if I got that, we were good. Arkstone might say, this is what we want. And I'd go through hell, and then at the end of the day, he might say, yeah, but you know what? I know that's what I told you, but not afraid he's fighting. It was better. So it was a different, I used to call that more of a transaction. By the way, excellent firm. The guys were great. They just had, it was just a different type of relationship. And the difference was, was that I knew that I could go through hell or high water, the EQR, and I'd get rewarded if I did it. Archstone, it might be. So maybe I'm not going to try as hard, or maybe I'm going to check along the way. But again, I never worried about them repaying me. I never worried about them doing the right thing. So these were great companies. Well, your Wall Street days. experience told you about, about about that. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know who, who's going to retrade me? That's right. right? That's and, uh, right. Uh, but you know, and that's I have to tell you that is a part of the business I enjoy. That's a part of the business I miss was the people. Yeah. I mean. I would go out and look at properties with people and you could tell people who were good because they would be so excited about what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And that's what I loved about the business. That's great. That's great. So the global financial crisis came mm-hmm. and the GSEs needed to restructure to become basically government agencies. Mm-hmm. Talk about that period and its impact. And you remained there through 2012. So you were involved in that whole reframing of mm-hmm. that. How did that 
impact your, you and your business at the time? Well, I remember where I was when I got the word about that we were getting taken over by the government. I was at a conference in California, Laguna Niguel, Santa Montage. With my Pretty nice place. Yep. And it had been <laughs> a hard year. And I got a call from Dan Muds. Someone in the office called and said, you got to come back to Washington. I said, the hell I will. I'm not going back. Well, Dan, I said, tell Dan I'm not coming back. It's been too hard. So finally, Dan Mudd's chief of staff called me and said, Ken, you got to come back. I said, man, I don't know if you got a word. I said, I said, Bill, I'm sitting out here in a room. I'm looking out on the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> My wife and I are getting ready to go to dinner. And he said, Ken, I'm not supposed to tell you this. The government's taken over. A lot of people are going to let go. I said, I'm on the red eye. I took the red eye back. And you know, it's funny, 9-11 was a beautiful day. This was a beautiful day. That's what, that's what I remember. I literally remember coming home, sitting in my den, off the red eye, I'm tired. And I had a couple of hours before we had to go down to the regulator's office. Herb Allison was there, so it was me and a handful of people. And they told us what was gonna happen. And you know, I'm sitting up there going like, my stock is wiped out. And I come back home, Dan Mudd lived down the street from me. And you know, you might criticize Dan for some of the decisions he made, but I, he's a great guy. And I went down and me, Dan and his wife sat up and drank two bottles of wine. I watched his kids and I went back home. And, you know, I told my wife, but I didn't tell her the full extent of the economic thing. And I wonder what about my business? How am I going to educate my kids? I, I'm just having all these thoughts. And, and when I went into work, I realized that, look, as bad as it is for me, it's worse for my people. So I go back and I said, let, let me do what, what I say about my people. What about my customers? And so those are the thoughts. And I'm not going to lie, I thought about leaving. Then I turned on the television that morning when they were closing down Lehman. And I said, holy yes, where, where can I go? So I said, you know, I got to stick this out. And I had been through, you know, remember Fannie Mae had been through the accounting scam. Mm -hmm. So I had been through one thing. So I'm asking myself, do you have the guts and the fortitude to go through another thing? And this was happening while all types of stuff was happening in my personal life. Because when, if you go back to 2004, I had two aunts, I had an uncle, a mother, a father, a grandmother, and a granddaughter. And starting in late 2004, one by one they dropped. Mm -hmm. And each time something bad would happen, so accounting scandal happens December 2004, January 2005, my mother died. My grandmother dies August. I mean, every year. So here's 2008, the only relative, like, I got an uncle and my dad still alive. And I spent all this money over the years. At one point in time, I had two people in nursing homes. So, you know, I'm, I'm just looking at the economic collapse because, you know, my net worth is wiped out. And there's no place to go. So I just said, okay, I'm going to stay. And Herb Allison was a fair man, but I learned something else. 
you know, my attitude was, I've done my job. I've done a good job, right? And if there's blame here, let's blame the bank regulators who let people do this. Let's blame the SEC. In other words, there's a lot of blame. But all the blame seemed to fall on Fannie and Freddie. And all the hate that accumulated over Fannie Mae's political activities came in the fore. So Herb Allison comes in, and I remember I had offices in Bethesda, multifamilies in Bethesda then. And he comes up and we do this presentation. And so at the end, I said, so Herb, you see that we have a, a sound business from a credit perspective that's profitable. And he looked at me and said, so you say. And I was stunned. Mm. I couldn't believe it. And he said that not because he was being mean, but because his attitude was like, y'all failed. So something ain't right. And you, you probably, I was guilty by association. And a few months later, when we went in, it was bonus time. Of course, we weren't going to get a bonus. And he asked me how I did. So I said, blah, 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 blah. I thought we had a good year, but, you know, clearly covered suffering. And he led into it. That's the problem. You're telling me how well you did. And blah, blah. I said, Herb, I was not the CEO. You asked me, and I said, I did my best to see to it that my customers, my book of business, my lenders, and my employees did the right thing. And that's all I'm telling you, right? Yeah, there were mistakes made, you know, but he, his feelings, your senior management, you have to take the blame. And that made me very angry, but I said, you know what? Because remember, I had been on the other side of the table with the RTC. Mm-hmm. So I had shut down people, I had said, so I said, okay, this is where I am. And I remember that, you know, this is all the fall of 2008, early 2009. My father's ill, and I remember I go to Houston. My father's dying. He's on a ventilator. And my brother calls and says, looks like Dad's on the last leg. So I get on a plane, and he dies while I'm in the air. So I get to Houston, and again, you know, every year I've lost relatives. So I'm like now a pro with doing funerals. And I remember when my mother died, I got a call. I was the accounting scandal where someone said, you're not going to get a bonus. And they said, I hate to tell you that. And I said, and I remember saying at that time, you know, all the money in the world, I could bring my mama back. Well, this time I get to call and someone says, Ken, I know this is a sensitive moment. When you get back, you need to talk to corporate security. I said, about what? Well, we'll explain when you get back. And so I'm going, why is it that every time, you know, I, you know I've lost my dad, so I'm trying to concentrate on that. Well, what had happened? Somebody in Congress Publish the salaries of everybody. See, at that point in time, they'll put the CEOs here. My compensation was not public. And when they made it public, they monitored the internet. Threats started coming in. And I didn't know it, but people had called my office and threatened with my secretary. I wasn't there, my secretary intercepted it. So this is funny. And this is where the funny comes in. So I go there and the head of corporate security, Fannie Mae, says, well, Ken, we've raised our threat assessment on you. You were yellow, but now it's an orange. It's heading towards red. I said, what's that mean? Well, there have been non-specific threats. We've notified the local police. You might have some demonstrators show up at your house. And if someone tries to force their way in, if they force their way in, we've told the police. So I said, force their way in my house? I said, well, I call the police. I'm calling for body bags. He said, what do you mean? So I'm looking at this guy. I said, man, do you know where I'm from? He said, what do you mean? I said, 
I said, I'm from Texas. He said, what's that mean? I said, I'm from Texas. I said, I'm old school Texas. He said, what's that mean? I said, I hunt. And he looked at me and I said, I can shoot everything from a squirrel to an elephant, what I got in my set. And if you're telling me this, I said, ain't nobody forcing their way into my house. Nobody's going to threaten my wife and children. If they do, that's when we went there. And oh my God, they freaked the hell out. They had the police, they had somebody come by and do something <laughs> in my house. <laughs> but I remember, like, I could not believe that somebody was going to remember Occupy Wall Street. Oh, sure. Stuff. Yeah. And every time I heard a branch creak at night, I was ready to jump up. <laughs> and those were like, it, 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 it was hard. Because, like I say, you felt like I've done the right thing. I've been an honorable person. And I'm getting tired with this brush. And I took her, asked me to go up to Congress with him. And we had to give testimony. And the congressman, they acted like Fannie Mae had broken in their house at night, stole silver, raped their wife, and set the house on fire. And what it was, it was a legacy of the years that Fannie Mae had lobbied against stricter regulation. So Mm -hmm. they were angry about stuff that had happened years ago, but now they felt they got us. And so, and after I hear it, I said, you know, I got to leave. But when Herb left, they make Mike Williams president, you know, who had been one of my peers, Mike trusted me. He backed me. And my only issue running the department, I had to try to keep employees together. My only issue was with some people at the regulator who, and I remember how they tried to make me increase my reserves more than I thought they should, which I refused to do. And fortunately, the head of accounting backed me. I had issues with some of the outside. You know, they were trying to make me do this and that. And they took some things away from me. But I kept that out of loyalty to my people in the business. And so when I told Mike, because I said, look, my daughter graduates from high school in 2011. And after that, at some point in time, I'm going to want to go. And I was burnt out. I was tired of fighting. If you look at the top, let's say, dozen executives at Fannie Mae in January of 2005, by January of 2009, there were three of us left. Everybody but the board staff wow. left. And so I stopped his wife out. So by the time I got to 2012, I was like, I'm out. I didn't know what I was going to do. And a guy came up from Texas who ran a, uh, in the energy business who I had met, and he belonged to Burning Tree. So we're riding over to Burning Tree, playing golf. He says, Kenny, I'm do it. You leave. I said, man, I'm going to try to get, finally become a good golfer. I'm going to go hunting. And beyond that, I can't tell you. And he said, Kenny, there's only so many rounds of golf and so many deer you can shoot before that gets tired. You better think of something else. Mm-hmm. I, I just I just couldn't think. And what happened, a guy who had worked at Fannie Mae, Darren Thompson, who had left, oh, he had left a long time ago, had gone to one of Steve Case's companies that had been successful yeah. and been sold. Mm-hmm. And he called me and said, hey, what do you think about doing? Why don't we get together and do something? So that's how my exit, I, I, I did not have a specific plan. I didn't think about doing this. I didn't think about anything. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get out of the, the storm. So talk about Railsford and how, how Railsfield and how you got started. So first of all, I'll tell you how we got the name. Okay. So Darren had had the idea to have kind of a financial advisory business that could morph into something else. So who's Darren again? Darren Thompson. He had been in credit. 
But Darren had worked, had been a managing director at Morgan Stanley Goldman, came to Fannie Mae, left Fannie Mae to go to one of Steve Case's companies that had a credit card process. Okay. Uh-huh. So he had been talking with a Chinese American guy who had worked at Morgan Stanley. And they were talking about their paths in life. And some kind of way, the Chinese gentleman mentioned how his great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, come here to work on the railroads. And Darren said, when he was working on the railroad, my ancestors were probably working in the cotton fields. So they took railroad field and put it together. So that guy decided not to do it, but Darren had already formed the LLC called Railfield. So when I came along, I said, that name is fine, right? I didn't care what the name was. Mm-hmm. And we got a contract from the insurance company. We had an insurance company contract from a government agency and an online real estate platform. So we had three financial advisory contracts. And I had done business with Penny Pritzker. Darren knew Debbie Harmon from the board of City. Artemis. And Debbie asked to meet with me and said, hey, would you guys, you start your business and we'll let you sit with us if you serve on our advisory board and bias us. And that's how we ended up at Artemis. So we're sitting up at Artemis. We subcontracted a lot of this work. And it was funny, both of us were increasingly bored with the advisory stuff. Because you'd advise people, we were both used to running stuff right. and doing stuff. And every time Artemis would do a deal, an apartment deal, they'd say, hey, we're having truck. Can you, who should we call it bank? Who should we call it credit? What do you think about this borrower? What do you think about this market? So they had some money from New York Common for Emerging Manager Program. And one day we got no conversation. Basically, would you be interested in investing some money? And I remember that Daryl Carter, who had owned one of my lenders and now had his own business. Mm-hmm. And when I called Daryl, they would think about it. Daryl said, Ken, they're going to give you just enough money to go broke. And he laughed. And he was right. <laughs> I, I didn't know the whole economics of the business. But the reason I did it, you know, when I had once talked with Sam Zell, when I was when I when I knew I was going to leave Fannie, and I was getting, and I was, I think we were the Bulls game or something. He said, you ought to do what you know. You know lending. You don't know equity. And I, so I never thought about doing equity. But I, but I used to joke with my lenders, oh, I'm going to come back one day on the other side of the table. So when an opportunity presented itself, and I had people approach me about starting the dust lender. But I had a feeling, been there, done that. And it probably would have been the best thing to do financially. And I always felt there was a need for diversity among my dust lenders. So mm-hmm. I had always been very supportive of Rodrigo Lopez. I've been very supportive of Herman. And I was very proud of that. But I wanted to do something different. And this opportunity came up. And, and so that's how we started Real Field. I called Todd and John, two guys that worked for me. I went up to New York Common. I looked at their portfolio. I saw they had a hole that they hadn't done a lot in Texas because Texas had blown up on them. I told them what I thought they had done wrong. So this came together very quickly. And we started off, you know, in this area. Uh, we were just next door. And it was hard because I knew from my time at the RTC, you know, when you have a big job, whether it was, you know, running securitization at the RTC or running multifamily family, they always like to tell people, like, you know, yeah, one day you're a visionary, you're a great leader, you're a strategic genius. 
and you walk out the door at Fannie Mae, and the next day you're just a brother with a PC and a dream. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And that's what I was. So there were a lot of people I had helped at Fannie Mae, and I knew that a lot of people were going to turn their backs on me. I was surprised at some of the people who I thought would be helpful who weren't. But then there were other people, and I've always said, you just never know. Hal Holiday, oh, that man, a huge dinner, was helpful. Greg Pincala at Fairfield. John Vaccaro, who had been at the Deutsche, and then was a can of Fitzgerald. Uh, 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 some of the people in Berkadia, there were some lenders who were helpful. The people in Meridian, Ralph Hurston. I mean, like I said, you just can't say who that's going to be. You know there's going to be somebody. And there are other people, I'm not going to mention, there were some people who I thought, like, yeah, they're going to be there. And, you know, I used to joke. He'd say, hey, man, it's Ken. Hello. Hello. You know, they weren't there. What about your HBS classmates? Any of them? I didn't call on anybody from HBS directly, but there were one or two people who were very, in fact, some of my closest friends were very emotional support. You know, because again, you know, to lose as much money as I did and to start as an entrepreneur at that stage in life. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I never, the only time I ever thought about what I lost, I think about what I lost when I go to Martha's Vineyard for the summer because I had plans to buy a house and I went away when I stopped like that. And that's really the only time I, I think about the economic aspect of it. Uh, other than that, my feeling was, look, I had a good ride. And this is another occasion when race, I think, comes in my favor. Once I was at Morgan Stanley and there, I had a dispute about my bonus. It was several hundred thousand dollars. And I remember that I used to call my parents every Sunday when I called my mother. My mother getting tough. And my mother and I was like, I can't believe mama what they did. And my mother said, boy, you're too old and too black to expect life to be fair. So I don't want to hear no whining. So she said, you either go in, she said, you either be a man, man up and take it, or you go in there and tell that man to kiss your ass and go find yourself another job. But, you know, make up your mind what you're going to do. And that was the cold water. She's and, tough. And then when I called my <laughs> grandmother, my father's mother, who I live with, and she said, baby, you don't sound good. And I started to tell her, then I realized, how can I tell somebody? who made money in a kitchen, who cooked and took care of other people's children. How can I tell her I'm upset about $100,000 she never seen that much money in her life? And so when this stuff happened at Fannie Mae, again, my, you know, when the government took over, my mother was gone, but I thought about what my mother would have said. I thought about my grandmother and I said, you know what? Yeah, I lost a lot, but I'm blessed. I'm still married. My kids are doing fine. I'm not broke. I'm just not as wealthy as I wanted to be. And so, you know, and I thought about some of the people I grew up with. So, you know, you can always look at the glass being half empty or half full. And so, yeah, I have some friends in New York, some friends in Texas who are doing a hell of a lot better. But then I also knew that, you know what, there are a lot of people a lot worse off. So don't feel sorry for yourself. I thought about what my mother said, you know, like, you know, life ain't fair. Get over it. But what you did do is mm -hmm. you built relationships. Yes. 
And those relationships is where why you're where you are today, right? That's right. So talk about that. Talk about you know the evolution of Railsfield, how it how it grew and what. Well, like I say, when we started, the people Artemis were very helpful, right? And I had customers I had done business with who were helpful. Rick Campo was helpful. We won a bid there. We didn't execute on it because, you know, that was the first deal I had done with Artemis. And in hindsight, I think we started a lot too big and it didn't happen. But Campo gave me a crack and Hal Holiday was very supportive. So the first deal we did in San Antonio, it was a CBRE broker, CBRE finance, and they didn't force that on me. But we did it because of the relationship. And we did a deal in 2014. We did a deal in 2015. The Artemis program changed. That money was from New York Common. And so we wandered in the, you know, as I tell people, we wandered in the desert for like about a year. We didn't do a deal. Really? That was tough. That was very tough. But we found more money. We found family offices. We found what Ralph Hertzka, one time I was at a conference. In fact, the same multifamily conference. I ran across Ralph Hertzka. He called me up to the suite and said, Ken, you were very helpful to us. What can I do? I said, man, I need some money. He said, well, the guy who used to work for us is managing money for an Israeli family. So me and John went to see them, ran across Greg Fairfield. And he said, Ken, how are you doing? I said, man, I need a deal. He said, you know, you were very fair to us when we got in trouble. How can I help you? I said, man, I really need a deal. He said, I'll tell you what, call so-and-so. And they let me have last look. They didn't, they didn't aggregate to fiduciary duty, but they, they said, here's this deal. We're going to tell you about it in advance, and we're going to tell you what the final bid is, and if you can meet that, right, you got a deal, right? It's trying out to be one of the best deals we did. John Vaccaro was running the fund for Canada Fitzgerald. Again, we got a deal. We got an off-market deal. So some of the relationships helped me with money. They helped me with deals. It wasn't easy, um, but... That's how we started getting family office money. So we did a little bit 2017, 2018, through relationships that John had. We found another family out in California. We took over their portfolio. And so and we get to 2021, we did $400 million in deals. We sold 200 million, we bought 200 million. Mm -hmm. We then got Citibank after George Floyd, wanted to do more business with some uh, you know, black asset managers, they put out an RFP, 60 people applied. We were one of the five that got it, got 40 million. Would have liked more, but, you know, we put out most of that money. We formed a relationship with Grover Capital Management. So I'd say that we still have a problem. We don't call ourselves an emerging manager. We don't like to say we're a minority-owned firm because when you do, they make you kind of come in the back door and they want to talk about impact investment and ESG and affordable. And you get the small dollars. And I'm too old to play that game. I don't, I mean, I'll do it if it's to my advantage, but we like to view ourselves as a boutique firm with an institutional background. And that's how we like to compete. And Artemis, we didn't do a deal with Artemis from 2015 all the way up to 2022, but then at the end of 2022, we did two preferred deals, preferred deals with them. Good. And so, yes, relationships matter. Absolutely. They matter. 
So looking at your portfolio, you have only one asset in the Washington, D.C. SMSA, if I'm, mm-hmm. unless I'm mistaken, yeah. in yeah. Frederick. Yes. In general, is your focus, it seems, is in secondary and tertiary markets. So talk about your acquisition strategy a little bit. Yeah, it, it, it's not really. Our markets are like Austin, San Antonio. Okay, well, that's a primary Dallas, market. Fort Worth. Yeah. And then we've got stuff in Richmond, Raleigh, Durham. So, you know, Carolinas. Mm-hmm. Virginia. Yeah, so we do have some deals, some affordable deals in tertiary markets. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I learned at Fannie Mae, I used to hear people say we do deals in good markets, and people didn't define it. So we sat up and devised an algorithm with the nine different variables to help us choose markets. That's how we ended up in San Antonio and Richmond. If you went to 2013, 2014 and asked the biggest players in Texas where they would invest, They'd all say Houston, Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth. They didn't do San Antonio. We looked at job creation, demographics, everything. We love San Antonio. People weren't there. We got in in 2014, 2015. When we exited, all of a sudden the big funds were there. Mm-hmm. They discovered Richmond, Goldilocks market. You don't think of Richmond. I call it Goldilocks. Richmond never grows too fast and never goes down too fast. We got deals around Richmond. Again, there weren't a lot of outside people, but when we got ready, everybody wants to be in Richmond. So that was a discipline. We did, in fact, CBRE and Houston still uses it. They call it CBRE Real Field Index. I think they still use it some. And now that I'm chair of Welltower, Welltower has PhDs in data science, so they're much more sophisticated. But we chose markets based on certain metrics. And the reason we're not in this market, D.C. has a lot of favorable things. We had, we had a deal in PG County, but one, the dollars here are much higher. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, this is one of my friends, boy, you sound so much like the regulatory environment here. You see the TOFA process. Yes. I, 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 I didn't like that. And then the other thing that happened when COVID hit and they had the eviction moratoriums, I got why they did it. Okay, stimulus is money is out. Guys, okay, you can lift that. They didn't. And the horror stories, I'm sure you heard them. Oh, yeah. That And, and there were people taking advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you start hearing about rent control. And look, I lived in New York City. I used to, one of my bosses from here, Marvin Marcus, ran the rent stabilization board there for years. I do not like that. And the reason I don't like it, I know how that story is. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard. Like we pride ourselves on that we build communities, but to do that, you got to be able to invest, and you also have to be able to manage your tenant base. If I see somebody dealing drugs, I want them out. I don't want to have to argue with somebody about addiction. And by the way, you've heard the stories, and it's true that when they did the eviction moratorium, it was to to protect good people, but not bad people. And I've heard time and time again, I won't mention names, about the drug dealer, about the deadbeat, you can't get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And all it takes is one deadbeat, one drug dealer, and I can bring down a whole complex. Yeah. And the thing that, that concerns me about rent control is it makes it hard to do the investments. I have never, we have never ripped off a tent. We've never done that. But, you know, that you have to charge you know, as a fiduciary, what the market will allow you to charge, but you also have to be able to recoup your costs. Mm-hmm. 
And the classic example of me is one what I heard about a lot of these rent control things is insurance. I don't control the cost of insurance. I don't control the cost of labor. Those are going up by double digit and everything east of I-95 is going to get hit with more and more insurance increases. So we like being in places, look, we do workforce housing broadly defined. We can't charge what people can't afford. But at the same time, we have to, as a fiduciary, have a fiduciary responsibility to do our investors. And I just get very nervous when I get into a situation where my cost can outpace the growth of revenue. So I get it. So you avoid markets today. That's why I'm not in New York. That's why I'm not in California. Mm-hmm. Those are good markets, but that calls for a skill set. Do I have it? Yeah, I got it. But do I want to to do that? Because I think that's we're a small shop and it, it's just too much brain surgery to do that. Got it. So I recently interviewed Catherine Buell, mm-hmm. who recently stepped down after leading Amazon's housing equity fund, who committed $2 billion in equity towards workforce housing mm-hmm. and affordable housing. Are you familiar with their program, and have you investigated it with any of your prospective investments? Mm-hmm. As it seems to align with your strategy to some extent. Yeah. You know, Brian Kenner, who's on the investment committee for that, used to work for me at Fannie. I met with them. I talked. We looked at it. But again, it's tied to this area. I think they'd also look at other areas like Nashville and Seattle. Right. Seattle is not one I want to be in. Nashville is a market I like, but Nashville is overpriced right now. It, 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 it's, Nashville is like Austin. And my experience, again, I'm old school. When a market gets that hot, there's going to be a correction. Now, some belt markets from a regulatory perspective are easier to do business with. But the flip side of that is it's easier to build. Yeah. So you've got to watch it. And so, you know, I believe in positive leverage. And so when I see my cap rate on top of my debt rate, that means I'm betting that I'm going to get a lot of rent increases. And I don't like doing that bet. I'm, I'm, I'm too conservative for that. And, and like I said, the D.C. area, not only did we have the little cap rates, I had a, a, a management process that was much more intensive and much more complicated. And so the Amazon thing was helpful. There are people like Jair Lynch who've done very well, but also we're not a developer. We're not a developer. And why are you not a developer? It's not my skill set. Okay. There are three things. One, it's not something that I've done. Okay. We could hire somebody. The risk reward profile, you know, you probably make more money doing it, but I'm conservative. And I just don't, I, I don't like the process of developing. And the third thing is, I think if I were 20 years younger, <laughs> but you know, I'm at the stage in life where, you know, you get, to, when you get older, and I don't know if anybody's told you this, you have what you call your go-go, your slow-go, and your no-go, <laughs> right? And so, I like that. I'm still, I still have a little bit of go-go in me, but you know, I'll be 69 in October. The slow-go years are ahead. And when you develop, you're going to invest a hell of a lot of time, emotion in a project that's going to take years to bear fruit. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not at a stage in life where I want to do it. I've talked to people about partnering on development, where I said, look, you go through the entitlement process. And once you got that, hey, we'll help arrange your construction financing. 
will arrange the permanent financing, take out. We can do that. I know how to do that very well. But I don't, I, I don't want to be the guy down at City Hall at the zoning meetings. I, I don't want to do that, particularly in the West Coast, the East Coast. I don't want to do that. There's <laughs> too much brain surgery. So you've seen it from the uh, lending ivory tower and you've seen what your, your clients That's were right. going through. That's right. Yeah. I remember talking to Tom Bazzuto once about stuff. And, and, you know, I live in Cleveland Park when they did Cathedral Commons. Yes. When I moved here in 1999, that was supposed to happen. Oh, I know. And I, I, some of my neighbors thought it. Oh, we don't want this. I work for the Saw Company. Oh, okay. The Saw Company sold that property <laughs> yeah. to Giant Food. Yeah. In 1991. Yes. And that was to save the Saw Company at the time. As you, you were leading the RTC, yeah. Frank Saul was three days away from losing yeah. Chevy Chase Bank to the RTC. You yeah. may have known that at yeah. the time. Uh, that property, along with Frit Flag Flagship Center yeah. up on Rockville Pike, that's yeah. now owned by Edens, was, or actually, I think it's now Federal owns it, was those two set property sales saved the company. Yeah. And now, and then, and then these people in my neighborhood, Cleveland Park, tried to say that, oh, that was an architecturally significant building. Is this a brick rectangle? Oh, yeah. But they fought it for, for, for you know, a decade, you know? And so that's the thing. Now, again, developer came along, but like I said, that was developing in some places was just too painful. And so I just, like I said, I don't want to do that. Yeah, well, um, it's interesting. I mean... You know, somebody like Catherine's much younger, yeah. and she had a social mission thing that was yeah. really important. She lives in Anacostia. Yeah. She has a whole feeling yeah. about that. Yeah. And by the way, I'm the chair of Martha's Table. So, you know, I'm in the area. I wanted, I wanted to develop. But there's one thing when you're doing it, like, on one side of the table versus being the other side of the table. Mm-hmm. You get it. Historically, affordable housing has been addressed by government financing and, and HUD. Do you see other... Private companies like Amazon stepping up to affordable housing challenges. Do you see this as a trend? I would hope it would become a trend. And I'll tell you why. Now we get into uh, philosophy. Good. I think the thing that has made this country great and kind of unique in the Western world is that the American public has generally been supportive of business and the American dream. And I think a lot of the polarization in the country has happened because people feel the dream is no longer attainable. And one aspect of the dream that's no longer attainable is owning a house. You know, I mentioned my, my, my grandparents, okay? Here's my father's parents, a cook and a chauffeur. When my grandfather died, he owned not one, not two, but three houses. A house they lived in, a duplex, and two rental properties. And when we moved my grandmother later on, she was 95, and we had to move her from the Chicago area, she and her sister to Houston, because it was too hard having all these elderly people scared. When I looked in one of her drawers, we were packing up her house. She had a copy of every mortgage payment they had made on that house. She kept it. And her sister, my granddaughter Alice, owned her home. My mother's mother, now my, my mother's house, they called that a shotgun house, but she owned it. And so these people were doing manual labor and they own property. And that affects how people view the country and view everything. And when that becomes 
not attainable. So when I look at my son and his wife, both work for Facebook, and they can't buy a house in the Bay Area. Now, they ended up buying a house, a country house, and they rent in the city. So they own a home. And even then, I had to help. That's ridiculous that we've created a generation that can't own a home. Now, some people say, oh, Americans overemphasize home loan, but that's part of being American. So I think it's in the interest of these big corporations to not only put their dollars to help, which helps their employees, it helps the country, but it also puts the pressure on the cities who have created a regulatory morass that makes it hard. So I get very upset when I hear the people, oh, we've got to make all these mandates for the developers. When I say, well, you know what? If you change your policies, maybe you wouldn't have to have so many mandates, you know, and maybe it would be easier for the developing community to enact the mandates if you made it simple. But if it takes me three years to get entitlement, I can't afford to do it. So Mayor Bowser steps up and talks about, you know, converting downtown office buildings to residential. But at the same time, people raise, how about raising the height limit? In yes. Washington, D.C., yeah. which would then free up land value yeah. and would create a lot of tax revenue for the city. Yeah. That's one thing. And then the other one you mentioned earlier, TOPA. Yeah. If they remove the TOPA register yeah. and rent control in the yeah. District of Columbia, yeah. you could open up tremendous opportunity for investment yeah. to improve housing and offer incentives for affordable housing with yeah. density yeah. and keep going with it. Why not? TOPA sounds good on paper. How many tenants groups have you actually seen do deals successfully? What it does do is it creates impediment that draws out the process. It discourages outsiders from coming to the market and it adds to the cost. I've seen, I've seen how people play the game. And law firms have actually built practices around the business, yeah. that, that, yeah. That, that legislation. And when Todd Lee, who used to work for me, was running DC Housing, there was a situation I was interested in looking in, and Todd warned me away from it because he says, Ken, you won't believe in politics, what's happening with this tenants group, and it's not going to be good. You know, so it, 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 it's an impediment. And I, keep, I tell you the side I keep looking at where the Lord Taylor is in Friendship Heights. Mm-hmm. And that should be affordable housing. It's mm-hmm. by a metro station. Yep. It's a big piece of land. Will it happen? I don't know. So I, I think people have to look. Incentives are nice, but if you look at the regulatory process, but I look at the land over by Howard, you know, how long that's taken to get developed. And I don't think a lot of policymakers realize that when you create, I mean, look, you want community input, you want that, I get it. But I don't know if a lot of people realize that the longer and the more complex you make the process, that I have to hire lobbyists and lawyers that what that does to discourage the production of housing. Well, there's certain people that want to stay employed. Yeah. (laughs) So the attorneys, this is a town of attorneys. Yes. Yeah. And attorneys will feed each other. Right. Yeah. I hate to say it, but but I can say legal infrastructure in this city is, is on purpose. Frankly, I'm not saying it's poorly intentioned, but I'm just saying, I don't think people realize that, there's a reason that, and by the way, it's not that Texas doesn't have an affordable housing crisis, but there's a reason that 
businesses and everything flock to these markets because it's just easier to do business. And because it's easier to do business, you know, you get growth, which helps your tax base. Mm-hmm. But when you start adding the taxes, it's your the virtual process, positive cycle. That's right. It, it, it creates distance. Yeah. So shifting to your personal board experiences, how did you earn the opportunities you've been given Mm-hmm. in participating in corporate boards. As a smart and bold black leader with your educational credentials, mm-hmm. you stand out clearly mm-hmm. and perhaps in an earlier era might, quote, fill the quota mm-hmm. uh, of either a woman or a minority. Talk about how you've seen that change over the years into a person, the person you are instead of your ethnicity or gender. You know, I'd say that the board, there was one board where that was probably a factor, and that was Comcast. But even Comcast was a result of relationships. When mm-hmm. I moved to Philly for Fannie Mae, my predecessor and my successor didn't live in the city. I was the only person that ever ran that office who lived in the city. I got involved in civic affairs, mm-hmm. met a lot of Comcast executives, and the current CEO and chairman of Comcast, my kids went to the same school, we lived in the same area, I'd see them at soccer games, and I'd always talk about the business, and I always ask questions about the business. And I think he was amazed that I knew so much, but Comcast was the biggest thing in Philly. And like, I, I think he probably learned, I'm, I'm a voracious reader of magazines of those papers. And so I knew a lot about the company, and when I found something interesting, I dig deeper. So I left Philadelphia, I'm here, I get a call one day, and someone says, would you be interested to be on the board of Comcast? So I go up, and what had happened, Comcast was really interested in Frank Reigns. Ryan wanted diversity on his board, but Ryan didn't want to just check the box. He wanted diversity of perspectives, but he wanted, like, business perspectives. And someone put up my name, and so they called me, and I went in, and, you know, I hadn't been in the cable business, but I read up everything. Ralph Roberts, Ryan's father, was still chairman then. And I remember he remarked, you asked some good questions. And I remember telling him, and the conversation was going great. And I said, well, guys, look, I got to tell you something. What? I said, well, you know, you know I'm not the CEO. Yeah. I said, but at that time, multifamily, I wasn't even an executive vice president. And they said, we thought you had a big job. I said, I run a $100 billion portfolio. <laughs> and Brian Roberts laughed and said, that's big enough for me. So I went on that board. It was intimidating at first because there were all these CEOs, but it just made me work harder. It was like, you know, I told you I'm competitive intellectually. And I even served as lead director for a while, and now I'm head of the non-gov committee. So that's how I got that board. So, yeah, diversity did play an element, but it was also that people knew me. They knew my mindset. And so Brian made it happen. But my other boards all came from business relationships. Forest City, I had done business there. I ended up on the board of Bentall Kennedy, a Canadian company, because one of the guys there had been on the board of one of my borrowers. Uh, And, you know, all these other boards were like, it was because of my real estate expertise, Mm -hmm. my mortgage expertise. And so... I was kind of a great candidate because I had this background and they could check the diversity box. So, so it's all always, and it's changed. Look, after George Floyd, everybody wanted it. 
One of the myths out there, though, was that there weren't qualified people. And in today's world, I've been stunned at how many that you just don't hear about as much. But the number of young Black and Latino and women and Asian executives, you know, everybody wants to talk about what's wrong with the country all the time. You know, for politicians, it's useful, you know, and... That's how they get elected. Yeah, so, you know, whether it's they're not enough blank, fill in the blank, whatever group you are, they're not enough of us. Or there are too many, you know, and, and it's diluting meritocracy, right? Well, the fact is, there are a lot. Do we need more? Yes. But the country's made, that's the beauty of America to me. Like I say, that my father could be born on a plantation and in a professor there, that I could go to segregated schools for the first 11 years of my life and end up being chairman of a publicly traded company. Oh, there's a need for more progress, but it's happening. And I think there needs to be a more positive outlook in the country and ask ourselves how we can keep making progress uh, rather than people trying to turn back the clock or else deny the progress is being made. Well, one of the reasons I do this podcast yeah is I like to find out people's roots and understand mm -hmm. where they came from and mm -hmm. what drives them. And the mm -hmm. whole reason I go into this much depth, mm -hmm. instead of just being talking about business and all that, mm -hmm. is to understand mm -hmm. what drives somebody's success. And listening to you mm -hmm. fascinates me because if it weren't for your parents, yeah. it weren't for your heritage mm -hmm. and what you learned growing up, you wouldn't be where you are today. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no doubt about it. I mean, if you grew up in the inner city somewhere that, yeah. and, you know, just had a whole different framework. Yeah. And to me, that's where we need to change. We need to change right down to, you know, when you have a child, mm -hmm. it's really important for them to get the best experience they possibly can in life. To me, that's, what do you think about that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I remember when my son was, when he came here, he was at St. Albans. And he was once trying to articulate something. And when I finally figured out, he was saying, my son, like me at that age, was had two left feet. He was not good at athletics. And yet he was making honor roll, put on honor roll at St. Albans. And he was talking about how people reacted to him, right? By the way, St. Albans was a great place. It was a great experience. But he said sometimes he could see how some kids, and what, what I realized, some kids had trouble sometimes reacting to a black man who might be smarter than them, right? And by the way, no ugly incidents. I don't want to give that thing, but just, he described some awkward moments. And I remember telling him, I said, son, that you have to remember that we're all captive to what we see. And a lot of times I said, when you see a black man on television, they're holding a microphone, or they have a ball in their hands. They don't present images of us as executives, as intellectuals. And so don't be surprised sometimes when people first meet you, if they have a, oh, wow, you're so articulate. Wow, you're so, don't be surprised at that. And don't get upset at that. Don't, don't call them racist, don't call them anything. Because a lot of times, that's not how we're presented, right? And, you know, and, and he, he got that. And so 
One of the things I think is important, this is the good thing about your, your, your podcast, for people to see Herman, to see Catherine, to see me, and that, that it can happen. And one of the, the, the things that I think ending segregation had to happen, but one of the things I see at Martha's table is now, I live in Cleveland Park. So my kids grew up in a very integrated world. My kids didn't grow up around poverty. They didn't grow up around drugs and stuff. I had to deal with that. But that also meant that those people in my neighborhood saw my dad. You know, they knew me. You know, so like when I go back to Houston, there are people I grew up with who didn't make it, but they, they saw me make it, right? Mm-hmm. And they can, you know, I can meet their kids. As we've become stratified along class lines, that's something that concerns me. That And by the way, it's not just poor black kids. I even worry about rural America when I see what's happening in some parts of the South and communities of the Midwest. Again, that's the polarization because people don't see success. People like them, whether it's, you know, like a white working class kid in Akron, Ohio, right? You know, who do I see? The big companies have left. So that's when I see the anti-elitism that I see in the Republican Party today, which I always find ironic that you have Donald Trump who went to Penn, his kids went to Penn, Ron DeSantis, Harvard and Yale. I mean, I find it like that's ridiculous for these guys to rail against elites when they're elites. But one of the reasons so many people buy that is they don't see people like themselves succeeding. And that's a that's a problem. Income mobility here is becoming less. And, and that's why I think it's important for people not only to have role models, but to hear stories that, you know, I can make this happen. A mutual friend of ours in recent podcast interviewee, Herman Bulls, yeah. we've talked about, referred to two pandemics, COVID-19, mm-hmm. which is mostly past mm-hmm. us now, however, has left a lasting impact on the commercial real estate sector. Mm-hmm. The other being the social pandemic driven by the divisiveness today, mm-hmm. including racial and gender con- conflagrations, George Floyd, mm-hmm. Me Too. Mm-hmm. How will the U.S. come together to resolve these issues? Will it just take time for the millennials and Gen Z generations to accede to leadership with different attitudes? I think it's hard. Sometimes it can be too much freedom. And by that, I think In today's world, people can say outrageous things and not be held accountable. People can spread lies and not be held accountable. And that hurts. I am more optimistic when I look at my kids. I had a, every year my wife and I host a reception for people who've been admitted to Stanford. And this year was a young black lady, her parents are African immigrants. So one thing that's changed is a, a, a significant chunk of the students are now children of immigrants. And one young lady asked me about what was it like, relations like at Stanford. And I said, well, you know, when I went, and my brother went, most of our friends were black. I said there was some self-segregation. And I said about what happened when my daughter was at Stanford. So my daughter was talking about one of her friends and I said, Kimberly, what is she? Oh, Daddy, she's a sociology major. I said, no, 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 what is she? He said, what do you mean, Daddy? I said, where is she from? Oh, Daddy, she's from Arcadia, California. I said, no, 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 no. I said, Kimberly, 
what is her ethnicity? She said, oh, daddy, she's Chinese. My kids, if I ask them about their friends, that is not the first thing. And my kids, we now have, in my family, I have, you know, gay nieces, right, in the family. That was hard. I remember when one of my nieces came out and I found out by accident. I said, why didn't you tell me? And she talked about things she heard people in the family say. And I said, you know what? You know, we're an older generation. We didn't know better. I said, but you know, I love you. You're my niece, your grandfather. I said, all these people love you. And now that's gone, you know? And so I see hope in the younger generations, but we do have a political system where it's easier to organize people around hate, around anger, about, about feeling unjust. So whether that's someone on the left railing against the big corporations or someone on the right railing against immigration. And when I look at, when you go to the hospital, where do your nurses come from? Where do the doctors come from? You go to the restaurants. So when I hear about inflation, one of the things I'm surprised somebody hadn't said, you know why we've got some inflation? We're not letting enough people migrate to the country, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have people migrating, don't complain when wages start going up. I mean, we needed wages to go up. But one reason there's a difference between I'm paying you because you're creating value, and other thing, I'm just paying you because I can't find anybody to do it. Well, you know. Unemployment's I'm, at all-time low. Yeah. I've never known anybody, I always like to say, I've never known anybody to migrate to this country, sit on their ass, come over here. I'm from no. America to get welfare. I come to this country to work. Whether I'm coming from Africa, Venezuela, Cuba, I come here to work. That's what made this country great. So I'm in favor of not chaotic immigration, but I think it's ridiculous that if an engineer from India wants to come here and we don't have enough engineers, or a nurse from the Philippines, or even somebody coming from Guatemala who says, I'll come here and cut the grass and pick strawberries, give me a job, and I don't see anybody in this country, black, white, green, and yellow, lined up to do that work, let them in. I can't argue with that. Perhaps the sector of real estate most impacted by COVID has been the office market, particularly in major city CBDs. I know your focus is multifamily. Mm -hmm. However, the ripple effects of the office market decline will have impact on multifamily properties in several ways. How do you see this impact? I see the impact because, you know, for a while it was smart growth, 24-7 living. Yep. And if you don't have the business activity that supports the restaurants, it's, it's a vicious circle. So when you go into downtown D.C. at night and there aren't the restaurants open, why would I want to live there, right? So I think, again, to resolve this, the office market is going to be what the office market is. I don't know how you fix that. But I think one of the things that cities could do and the large people who own real estate, they need to do everything they can to encourage the formation of businesses in these central business districts, the restaurants and everything. And that is by tax breaks, by security. 
How about getting the federal government to come back to work? Yeah, the federal, I mean, in, in our case, D.C., definitely, getting them to come back. But it's the federal government having people come back to work. But why don't a lot of people want to come back to work? They're worried about crime. They're worried about the cost of it. Parking. How am I going to get to work? How much it costs to eat lunch? You know, a city that has done, and again, it's their form of government. Years ago, one of my brother-in-laws who worked for Exxon was stationed in Singapore. And the Singapore government fostered the creation of what they call Hakka, I think they call it Hakka Markets. And all of these build, apartment buildings they built, where they'd have all these food stalls, where they had very low rent. And they did that because they said, we want women to enter the workforce. We want to make it easy for people to be able to get a cheap meal. So we're going to give, encourage the formation of all these small, little, tiny restaurants. And it, was an exa- and it worked. And as an example of me, like, I'd love to see not, you know, look, I love Jose Andreas, but I'd love to see D.C. do something where, and some of the big office owners get together to say, you know what, we're going to set up some more food courts and stuff where we're going to make it cheap and we'll have security there and we'll tell the parking garage, free parking at night, encourage people to come back. And when you do that, then you might find more people, hey, I want to go down here and work because there are all these hip places to go after I work and go to lunch. So, you know, it's going to call, we got to shatter the traditional way of thinking. But it, it, it it's a problem because it affects tax, but it, it affects where the people want to live. So you're, you're meeting regularly with corporate leaders. Talk about the pervasive influence of ESG, particularly in the commercial real estate sector. Will the future of the industry and success be, be tied more to performance rated with ESG metrics than financial metrics? And how do you see those incentives being allocated? There are two dimensions to ESG. There's the one like, oh boy, I got to do it because... The SEC or some group is asking you to do it. Then there's the, you know what? This makes sense. What makes sense is you got to look at energy costs. What makes sense is climate change is real. Are you ready to deal with it? And by that, I'm not talking about, oh, how much you pollute, but like, you know, flooding. Look what happened at Fort Lauderdale last week. Right. You know, that's real. That affects your insurance. Insurance. So, you know, there's dealing with climate change and there's dealing with the fact that when I hear people like, oh, they roll their eyes about the uh, people aspect, you know, having the LGBTQ community, that ain't going away. Having people that look like me, you know, this country, like it or not, is going to become more diverse. And if those group, any group is shut out, that threatens the future of the system. Because when people don't have an interest in the system, they're not going to support it. Right? So I think business is doing the right thing by people, doing the right thing by the environment is in critical to their long-term success. But there are aspects of it that are pain. You know, the stuff that came in front of the SEC, 500 pages, there's a lot of stuff you look at and say, oh my goodness. Why do I have to do this? It's not adding value to anybody. So I think that the basic thrust of ESG, people could talk about companies being woke, but like if you're not 
Uh, and by the way, they can never define it. But if you have a company where black and brown people of color don't feel comfortable with you, you ain't gonna make it, right? That's too big a chunk of the population, right? You know, I want to take what the quote they, that they attributed to Michael Jordan, which got kind of taken out of context, where he said Republicans buy shoes too. Well, guess what drives trends in this country? What you see black kids doing in Los Angeles, what you see Puerto Rican kids doing in New York in terms of fashion, in terms of music, is going to be your kids are going to be doing it in the next few years. Mm-hmm. And why not incorporate that? So if you're a business, so that's that's the part of ESG to me, being aware mm-hmm. is good. Mm-hmm. Where it breaks down, though, is sometimes is some of the things that go along with it are like you're going to roll your eyes and say it's a pain. Um, but, you know, that that's the world we live in. But I think rather than fight the concept, we need to spend more time talking about here's a way to implement it in a manner that's business friendly. Mm-hmm. So, going to personal issues, what are your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career? Okay. I'd say the biggest wins have been uh, one at the RTC and Fannie Mae, that my support of diverse businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a major thing, but, you know, in life, when there are problems, you always like to be able to look in there and say, what did I do? And, you know, I help, whether it was the RTC helping some Black-owned and women-owned and Latino-owned investment banks get a toehold outside of municipal finance. I'm proud of that. Uh, I'm proud of what I was able to do in the DUST program. Mm-hmm. And then I'm very, very proud of what I've been able to do with people. Like I said, when I go places, someone once joked, did everybody work for you? The head <laughs> of TIA prep, the saw the ducket, used to work at Fannie Mae. Uh-huh. And I'm at a conference, and I go up, and there's all these people around, and she said what an inspiration I was when she was at Fannie Mae. Wow. She saw people like me, you know, in leadership positions. So when I can say that I've inspired, whether it's directly or indirectly, someone I'm very proud of that. And I'm also very proud that uh, a story I like to tell about multifamily is when my wife's, one of my wife's grandmothers died, Miss Mouton died, and I went back to Houston for the funeral. And I was going to the church, and I said, this was a Catholic church that the Creole families built on Mother Mercy. I hadn't been there in decades. And I'm driving through the neighborhood. I pass by where my grandmother's house used to be, and it's torn down. It was now a drive-in chase bank. And I'm driving down the street, and all of these houses that were once had the fig trees and were brightly painted, they're now dusty and torn down, dilapidated. The neighborhood has just been devastated. And all of a sudden, I see this sign, construction site, seniors' housing being built by Mount Bethel Baptist Church. Manson, it was Fannie Mae tax credits. It was one of my dust levels. It was the only bright new thing in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know about the particular deal, but the fact that a product that I had did that. Mm-hmm. And now when I go into Anacostia and I see the stuff that Charles Smith, I mean, I mean that, that Smith. W.C. Smith. Chris Smith, yeah, W.C. Smith has developed. 
when I see the stuff that Todd Lee used to work for him in D.C. housing, it was a great loss, but I see the projects that his agency sponsored. When I see stuff that Red Brick, this development company, Louis Dubin, Louis Dubin. used to work for me at RTC, what he's done and the stories he's told me about how he did it, I can't tell you. That's why one of the things about real estate, I can see what tangible. I've done. I can see the tangible stuff. And so that's the stuff I'm most proud of in my professional career. What about losses? Losses, I hate. I wasn't directly responsible, but I hate what happened to Fannie Mae. Right. Because it wasn't just the loss of my money or the loss of the company. It was the loss. It was the fact that unfairly that affordable housing for a long time, people blamed it on affordable housing. And I'd always tell people it wasn't affordable housing that did it. It was no doc loans with no down payments, low down payments that did it. But it got labeled as affordable. And so people stopped talking about closing. You know, the home ownership gap was beginning to close between black and white America, thanks to Fannie and Freddie and a lot of banks. And I remember when Obama's people came in, they were saying, oh, the banks did this. And I remember trying to tell people, in fact, that's when I stopped getting invited to meetings of treasury. I said, yeah, the banks did some bad things, but you can't beat on the banks because you need them. And now, if you're at a bank, you're scared to take a lot of risk because if something goes wrong, you know, you get slammed, right? So one of the loss to me was, it wasn't just Fannie and Freddie, it was the loss of an idea that the GSEs and big banks could help close the gap and that they, to do so, they needed to take risks and be innovative. And I think we've come up with regulatory regimes that make it hard to do that. And you don't hear people talking about it. I mean, you hear people talking about inequalities. You hear people saying, oh, we need to do more. Mm-hmm. But when the rubber meets the road, the rubber meets the road, like, yeah, guys, you can talk about education. You can talk about job. Let's talk about where people live. And let's not talk about mandates. Let's talk about what you're doing with the money to build it and what you're doing to support people who want to buy that home. The dream has become tarnished and no one really wants to talk about the financial commitment it will take to make the dream alive. And that's to me, I mean, again, you might say, well, Ken, that's not as much personal, but that's the thing I hate the most. That's the biggest loss. So what was the biggest surprise in your, in your career? What hits you from, wow, this is amazing. Or, I'd say that the biggest surprise to me is that when I look at corporate America today, has been the progress that's been made. And by the way, I'm not satisfied with it. There's still a long way to go. But there is more. You go look at a lot of major companies today, and the women, the blacks, the Asians, the Latins that you see, people who are traditionally not part of it. The classic example, I'm watching 60 Minutes last night. I watched it too. And who did you see from Google? 
there was a woman, an Indian, CEO. Indian CEO, and an African. You know, yeah. So we had two immigrants, all articulate, very, and they're running artificial intelligence. That's right. Right. In other words, they didn't say, "Oh, let's let's try out our diversity. Let's show it." Like they didn't say, "This is our head of diversity. This is our head of artificial intelligence. This is the CEO." Deep mind, deep mind. Right. Yeah. So you know, to me, that was just amazingly telling. Right. That they could show that. And that's, it's a surprise because again, 30 years ago, it wasn't like that. And it's, that's the thing that this country should celebrate. And that's the thing I always worry about us losing. It's a surprise because it wasn't like that growing up. And it's a surprise because you don't hear enough about it. So what advice would you give your 25 year old self today, Ken? Take more risks. Don't be afraid and dream big, but don't forget who you are. One of the things I tell young black executives is there are two traps. And I had Dick Parsons, I had a great advisor, Dick Parsons, who became chairman of Time Water and Citibank. But when I was at Morgan Stanley, he was an investment banking client. That's how I met him. He was on the board of Fannie Mae. And he said there are two traps as a black executive you can't fall into. One is the anger trap, that every time somebody gives you feedback, or every time something doesn't happen your way, that you blame it on your race. But the other trap is that you ignore it. And it's hard to balance those things. Because I remember one time I was talking to Dick, and I was talking about trying to become an EVP. And he laughed. He said, well, don't forget, it's hard for the white guys, too. (laughs) (laughs) He said, it ain't easy for anybody. But there's a balance. So there there have been times in my life I I thought race, yeah, even today, yeah, there there are times. But I can't obsess over that, and I can't become angry about that. And I can't see every setback in life is due to race. And that's hard. And I worry about my kids because they grew up in a different world. I worry about my daughter as a woman. I made an appointment with my daughter to meet. My daughter worked for Debbie Harmon one summer. And my daughter would say, well, Daddy, I don't know if I'm interested in real estate. I said, I want you to meet an incredible woman. Mm-hmm. Debbie Harmon is an incredible woman. I introduced my daughter to Bain because one of my business school classmates, Phyllis Yale, is on the management committee. And one summer in Martha's Vineyard, I said, I want you to go meet Phyllis. Just go have lunch with Phyllis. I made an appointment. To do that because I wanted her to see successful women who achieved a lot career-wise, had families, had a full life. You should introduce your daughter to Catherine Buell. Yeah, maybe I will. She's day. a special lady. So you know, <laughs> I try to. So so that's the thing. So it's 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 a balance. Look, there's always going to be anti-Semitism. There's always going to be some type of ism. There's always going to be somebody against you, but. People who achieve great things, they're aware of it, and they move on through it, and they deal with it. So, Ken, my final question. If you could post a, a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what mm-hmm. would it say? You know, I think I would put, it, it wouldn't be a complete sentence. I think I'd put down, listen, period. Read, period. Think, period. 
act love. That's great. Ken, thank you very much for this wide-ranging conversation. This has been very good. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me a chance to pontificate. (laughs) So we just listened to Ken Bacon, who is the founder of Railsfield, a multifamily investor. And of course, he was he had led Fannie Mae's multifamily group for many, many years prior to that, after, until Fannie Mae's whole entity was taken under the federal government and his stock situation was wiped out, which was not a happy experience for him. But he's recovered, which is great. As I usually do, I'm bringing in my postscript co-host, and that's Kevin Dean. Kevin, welcome today. Thank you for joining me today. Glad to be here, John. So, Kevin, what'd you think? You, you're you a former Fannie Mae employee. So, I don't know if you knew Ken when you were there, but maybe talk a little bit about your thoughts of what he said and what your relationship was with him. Sure. Yeah. So, I was definitely excited to uh, listen to this podcast when you gave me the opportunity and definitely kind of coming full circle. I, you know, I was at Fannie Mae from 2017 to 2021. So didn't wasn't there while Ken was working at Fannie Mae, but he did stop by the office a couple of times. So I've met him more mm-hmm. than once. And it was just kind of cool to think through, you know, we've taken, you know, somewhat similar paths, mine on a much smaller scale. <laughs> we both worked at Fannie Mae and then ended up branching off and kind of doing our own thing and in, in the multifamily business, which has been, you know, great. And so it was really interesting just to get his full story and his background and some of his thoughts around his experience at Fannie Mae prior to and and after. You can tell just the impact that his experience almost 20 years at Fannie Mae had on him personally and also on his business today. That really stuck out to me. The other kind of themes I picked up on was just the power and the importance of relationships on your business and, and on your life. And then also just the effect that your life experience has on your perspective. So with that said, I had a couple questions I wanted to run by you, John, just to get your thoughts on the interview. First off, I thought it was a pretty interesting story. You know, Ken has met a ton of interesting people throughout his career. Uh, one story he mentioned was prior to him leaving Fannie Mae, he actually reached out to Sam Zell, it sounds like, and just was getting some advice for from him. Sam actually gave him advice and he told Ken that you ought to do what you know once you leave. So I just wanted to ask you, what were your thoughts on that advice that Sam gave to Ken prior to leaving, Fanny? Well, I, you know, uh, Sam is an interesting, in fact, I'm in the midst of his book, which is really good about his career and and how he basically bootstrapped from, from the beginning. And when he was in school in Ann Arbor, Michigan, to buy apartments and all that. And he went on to law school, which is interesting, you know, that he went went that route as opposed to being a businessman. But he soon learned that he wouldn't be an he couldn't be an attorney. <laughs> Got back to what he really knew, and that was multifamily investing. And then of course investing in much broader sense, of course, since then. So I think that's sage advice from Sam. He he knew he started to explore things that didn't quite fit his personality and ability and then realized he'd have to go back to to his knitting and do what he was successful at doing. And obviously he built perhaps one of the most successful real estate careers in, in, 
American history. It's just an, quite a story. And Ken listened, obviously, to him and he referred to it. And so Ken is a multifamily investor and obviously was investing at Fannie Mae in multifamily, a portfolio of multi-billions that he was overseeing. So he understood the mechanics from an economic standpoint. I asked him why he went into the equity space instead of doing a debt fund or some kind of a, of a debt type of vehicle. And he, he just said he wanted to have personal stake to grow and not rely on, you know, that kind of velocity and volatility that happens in the debt markets. So it was interesting. Yeah, I think too, you know, he spoke kind of in the, seems like more closer to the, the beginning of the interview about how when they look at deals, they really think about what's what's our downside here. And I have to believe that that comes from his experience of Fannie, just always thinking about credit risk on a daily basis. So mm -hmm. with that said, what impact, I mean, I'm sure there's tons, but any impact you think that sticks out to you that Ken's experience at Fannie Mae has on his business today? Well, I think caution to some extent is important for him based on what, as you suggested, he's, he's had an underwriter mindset for so long. He was a, investment banker before he was at Fannie Mae and understands the public finance markets. That's where he focused most of his energies and then morphed over to single family. And then of course, multifamily over time through there, understanding that. But I think coming into the multifamily investment space, uh, I think he had some personal objectives there. Uh, he wanted to look at you know, below the radar screen deals more in the workforce housing space. He didn't want to compete with the big, the big investment shops. He didn't want to compete with the REITs. He didn't want to be a big, he wanted to go below the radar, which interesting, Kevin, is somewhat what you're doing, which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> his, his strategy is very comparable to what your, your company is. So maybe you could comment on that a little bit. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that. Any business where you have less competition, it's always, you know, it's likely that you have a better outcome. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we'll stay in that kind of workforce housing affordable space forever. But for us, you know, as a new shop, it's enabled us to compete on some deals in, in a, you know, more competitive fashion. Whereas if we were competing on some of these large class A deals in, you know, downtown Charlotte, you know, we'd probably have a little bit less success competing against some of these larger institutional investors. And the result of that has definitely been, you know, we're able to generate better returns for, you know, staying within our kind of capabilities there. So yeah, definitely some alignment there in a lot of ways. I, I would say the other thing too, is just with my experience at Fannie Mae, there is a, a high focus on affordability and workforce yes. housing. Yes. So I'd be lying if I said that that didn't impact our investment thesis a little bit and what we're comfortable with. You know, there's almost a floor in that space in a way where, you know, politically, you know, people want to support workforce housing. Everybody knows that there's a need for it. Everybody knows that that's a large segment of the population. Housing is becoming more and more unaffordable. So it's a desirable product type within the multifamily niche. Well, the, the, you know, it's one market in real estate where it's almost unlimited demand. Not quite 100% unlimited, but just about. I mean, if you can figure out a way, to provide affordable housing to people that need it, you know, the supplies, I mean, the, 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 
the demand is limitless. I think it just, you just, you can, if you can find place to put it up to make it work economically, it's nonstop. And the thing is the sophistication it takes to put a deal together in that space. I mean, obviously Ken has it. He structured a lot of complicated deals at Fannie Mae. I mean, the structured finance deals that they put together is, is leading edge as any, any institutional investor in the world, frankly. <laughs> I mean, you saw it firsthand. I mean, and, and Fannie and Freddie Mac too. And I asked him about the competition. He said it was good to have Freddie Mac because there was always somebody to compete against. You know, if you're the only guy, I mean, you can set the bar, but you know, you know, it's just not the same. So it was good to have them. But it was also, you know, I think he just, he understood what it takes. So he saw the need, he knows the need, and he's willing to go through the brain damage it takes to put something together to make it happen. And I think, you know, race comes into it a little bit too. I mean, he being a black man and growing up in Houston and all that. And then, you know, he goes to the inner city and he sees some of the challenges. I asked him why he wasn't investing in the inner cities. I think it's, you know, it's an interesting. He's looking at more rural markets and that. Maybe that's a little bit, you know, of, of his particular background being somewhat from a rural setting when he was younger. I don't know. You know, I don't know if he's ever worked in the real deep urban type, you know, settings. But anyway, he he's been finding a way to do it, get it done, and he obviously has a lot of relationships to help raise capital. So that's helped him too. And then he's on boards too. He's on several boards. So that's helped networking. Yeah. And that was one of the other themes I picked up on was just the power of relationships. And you can tell that Ken has uh, really spent a ton of time getting to know people in the industry and building those relationships. And one of his first deals, it sounds like, was a direct result of a relationship that he had with a broker. So you can tell that the power of, of, of strong relationships has been, had a large impact on the success of his business. Just curious, John, if you want to comment at all on your experience and just the importance of relationships in real estate, how that can result in kind of getting deals done and, and, and making money in real estate. Well, as I would say, and I've said this before, there's three things that you need to understand and to be successful in our industry. One is communication and relationships. And that's to me, I think that's the top of the heap. Second is the finance side and understanding the economics, the numbers, structuring a deal, putting it all together from a financial perspective. And the third is to understand the real estate metrics and the, and the shape of things, the physical aspects of the real estate, understanding the property, the all, everything you can find out about the property, the location, the physical aspect of it. So you put all those three to get things together. That's our industry if you do it extremely well. But number one is relationships. I think it's it's the key, key point to success in our industry, frankly. It's number one. And and that's up and down the board. That's from everything from contractors to architects to brokers to clients, tenants, you know, everything. I mean, it's pervasive. Everything that, you know, we all have to live somewhere. We all have to work somewhere, usually shop somewhere. So, you know, real estate's in our life every day. And so it's basically universal. Relationships are important. 
could not agree more. Uh, last thing that stuck out to me was just when you asked Ken what advice he'd give to his 25-year-old self today. He said, take more risk, but don't forget who you are. So I thought that was interesting. It seems like a lot of people in business get to the end of their career, and that is common advice I hear is, you know, take more risk. The, the Don't forget who you are, I thought was, was cool too, but curious if you had any thoughts on his advice to his 25-year-old self. I think we're all built differently. So my feeling is that there's some people that just, you know, they're very comfortable just having a very narrow sphere, a small sphere of activity. It doesn't, they don't have to take any risk. They, not any risk, but the risks that entrepreneurs like to take or will are willing to take. Whereas there are people like Sam Zell who, you know, they can't get enough risk. I mean, for leisure, for him, he jumps on a motorcycle and rides, you know, I mean, and he's just built differently than a lot of people. And financial risk for him is, but it's interesting. He understands what he's getting into and he spends a lot of time thinking about it before he does it. So from other people's view, it's like he's taking extraordinary risk, but he's, th he's thought it through and he's always thought about the downside as to what's going to happen. If it doesn't work out, it's not going to crush him. He'll understand, you know, okay, I can, I can go a certain distance and lose and still be okay. You know, so I think the key is to measure your risk, but be bold, incline towards the bold and, you know, recover if you have to a little bit, I think is probably good advice for people at your age, incline to step out. And often people say, you know, go ahead and then apologize if you maybe have gone a little too far, you know, instead of, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to stay back and not do anything. Well, no, nothing has been accomplished in human history without people taking risk. So, you know, otherwise we just be mushrooms on the ground, you know, <laughs> you know, so. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I've got a, a a quote in my phone that goes off as a reminder once a week. It says, 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed in the things you didn't do than by the ones that you did do. So there I, you go. There you go. But measure it. That's all. Just be measured to some extent. Because, you know, you don't want to be too foolhardy and go off on things that you could. You could have a big setback, but you know, when you're young, when you're 25, I mean, there's very few things that are going to kill you, you know, <laughs> financially or emotionally. You can always recover. You can, even if it takes three or four or five years to recover, it could be painful, but you can recover. I mean, I looked at the early nineties and what happened with a lot of people. And a lot of those people are some of the most successful people. And they had to file bankruptcy and go completely out of business. Completely. And they've come back. Bob Kettler is an example. Somebody who just, just everything caved in on him. And he came back by doing, you know, the tax credit business. And look at Ken, you know, our subject here. He gets a phone call out in California. <laughs> come, come back to home, the home office. He sits down or he hears, he talks on the phone. The guy says, you got to tell me what's going on. I, he says, well, 
government's taking over Fannie Mae. It's like, oh, no. And he knew right then that all of his net worth was wiped out. Imagine that, you know, after that long career. And then he goes back, so what am I going to do? Well, there he is. He's built back his credibility and his income. And, you know, he's got a lot of to, to do yet, but, you know, He's my age. He's exactly my age. He's 68, 69 years old, but he's building a business back. So, but he's got young hustling guys working for him that are helping and that helps, you know, to have a good team. So that's what's happened. Well, it was a great interview. Great story. Great to hear more about Ken, his background and just kind of his thought process. So appreciate you doing the interview, John. Yeah, well, thank you, Kevin, for joining us, joining me for this postscript again. And listeners, thank you for joining us for another interview. We've got some really good ones coming up. I've got the next one in the pike is a by the name of Byrne Murphy, who wrote a book called Lay Deals. So stay tuned for that in a couple of weeks. Thank you for joining me.